Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy, one lie at a time. In your ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, American Theron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Oh, not too much. How about you? So far, so good. Can't complain. My computer is restarting at the worst time ever. I was just going to say, he's standing there just looking at a blank screen. Yeah, it's like restarting. It was like, dude, worst time ever. Worst time ever. How was your weekend, (laughs) though? Doing all right? Not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. I had a weird interaction over the weekend. So I go to a quote-unquote pharmacy. They call it a pharmacy. It's really where you basically get pot from, but they call it a pharmacy now. And one of the women there, Awesomely adorable, right? Not looking for anybody, not trying to pick up on anybody, but your guy. And when it thinks somebody's flirting with you, almost reflexively, you flirt back. So, oh, hang on. So this is, we need like that. It wasn't really that, because it was more like a hair flip. Like it's, what I mean by a hair flip? It's like um, sometimes when women are trying to be attracted to the guy and get their attention, they kind of flip their hair. In this case, me, I'm like, yeah, you know, just a long day at the radio, et cetera, et cetera. The other day, she's like, what radio station do you do you work at? I mean, I just want to listen to it to get a feeling for it. I was like, oh, 105.5 FM, I work at Radio Spoot. Oh, so she could be listening. I don't think so. Not after that conversation. She, <laughs> When I told her Radio Sputnik, I was like, yeah, it's a Russian station. She says, oh, wow. And she, said, she audibly gasped and then says... I wouldn't have even told her. Well, for me, I am proud of my job. And so for me, it's the most natural thing in the world to say, I do radio. But you know what I see? You know what I like is when like when people would ask me like, oh, what network do you work for? I'm like, oh, I, I work for an international station. Oh, that's what you go. And that's oh, what I would say. I and, then, tell. and then they would say, oh, which one? Because I knew if they said which one, then they actually pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I work for RT. And they were like, oh, really? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like them. But if, if it was other people, I was like, oh, I look for an international station. They'd be like, oh, OK. Yeah. Well, I knew that they had no idea what well, I was see, talking about. Well, see, in her case, they must have been listening or talking after the fact when I left previously because she was like, I thought to myself, I need to ask him a radio station. I wanted to hear his channel, et cetera, et but cetera. But if you would have just said, oh, 105.9, I guarantee you she wouldn't even even realize what Radio Sputnik no, she is. Wouldn't have. And people wouldn't even realize that, hey, maybe that Russian propaganda actually spits some truth. Well, her thing was basically, she says, okay, I need to internalize that. When <laughs> she audibly said that, I need to internalize that. And my thing was basically like, okay, there's no way to really explain anything in the short period of time that's that we're going to have that's this That's why you learn, Jamarl, you don't. <laughs> you Not just say 105.9, you have them listen, and I guarantee you, if after she listened and you would have been like, hey, like, what would you think? Like, oh, my God, like, when you said this was true, this yeah. was true, and be like, yeah, and you know what to think that it's the Russian station. Well, she made she the point. She would have been of, like, wait, what? She says, I'm going to have all sorts of questions for you when you get back. She's like, don't take a person. I said, look, we debate for a living. More than um, open to having those conversations. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I, I, it was just awkward. It was like, oh, God. Now I got to explain this in no, the two-minute conversation that we're no, going to have don't. on this. You don't have to explain anything, dear. Well, think of it this way. If she comes back and is like, hey, I heard the channel. This was very interesting. Uh-huh. That's a good thing, right? Meaning at some point, there's always going to be this breaking of, yeah, I work for this radio station. Yeah. No, but I, like I said, I would have said nothing in the beginning. So she actually had a zero, like, zero, like any any ideas going into uh, it. I'm an open book on stuff like this. Oh, no, trust trust me. So yeah. am I. But I feel like a lot of times you can't tell people 
because nope. they're immediately going to go into it thinking, oh, well, this is already Russian stuff. Right there. It was that part. Right. It was that part. And that's what I'm saying. You don't even tell them. You tell them after the fact. Yeah. Because I guarantee you if they listened, not knowing that it wasn't Russian, they would have been like, oh, my God, like, yeah, what you were saying was so true and blah, 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 and like your debates. Probably. And, I, and you don't hear this on regular radio. I guarantee she would have said that because time over, like hand over foot every single time people were like, you're covering a lot more stuff on RT than even like Fox and CNN. And I'm like, yeah, gee, you think? Yeah. You know, because it's, yeah, we don't have advertisers the way that they do. So we don't have to tout to like this, oh my God, that's not, if it leads, it bleeds yeah. kind of crap, you know? I suspect so. if she would have listened, yeah, she would have been like, wow, that was a really good show. And that's where I always would say after the fact. Yeah. Like I would always link my shows and people, like even people that didn't know RT, like my friends, uh-huh. and then they would watch and they'd be like, yeah, and then I was looking up what RT was. I watched your show and then I looked up what RT was and I didn't realize it was the Russians. And I was like, yeah, I get to say whatever the hell I want and I get paid to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Is your computer up? Yes, it's okay, up. And that's good. A good. that's a good word. Um, what is it called? Some of thumb. thumb. Rule of thumb. Rule of thumb. Thank you. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Don't tell him. Tell him after the fact. Again, and, and radio is so much easier. 105.9 versus I would have to say RT. Yeah. Or sorry, 105.5. I would have to say RT. Right. Yeah, and I can just say like, like, Where can I, I watch that? And I'm like, well, <laughs> right. not on TV anymore. <laughs> well, let's get to some headlines so we can get to chatting some more. In your national news, the richest man on the planet, Elon Musk, will not be on the board of directors of his favorite social network, Twitter. Twitter CEO Paraj Agrawal said in a statement, although the board and the top management were excited to negotiate the risks and the processes which Musk, uh, with Musk that morning, uh, that same morning, Musk allegedly said that he will no longer be joining the board. The Biden administration is expected to roll out a long-awaited rule on ghost guns, unregulated and untraceable firearms built from kits, as soon as Monday. Under federal U.S. law, firearms are required to be labeled with serial numbers by every manufacturer, importer, or anyone making a firearm. This is why Chicago has a big problem, guys. These ghost guns. Oh, is it? Big, big problem. Yes. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan boasted in his speech this past weekend that Washington is ensuring Ukraine receives weapons every day to fight Russia. Sullivan said in an NBC interview, quote, We are doing everything we can as the United States, working around the clock to deliver our own weapons and organizing and coordinating the delivery of weapons from many other countries so that Ukraine has what it needs. Weapons are arriving every day, including today. In your international news, tensions are flaring up in France amid the presidential race with people taking to the streets and holding demonstrations in support of their candidates or protesting against their rivals. The first round of presidential elections in France was Sunday, with the second set for April 24th because no candidate gained a simple majority. As 97% of the vote has been counted, President Emmanuel Macron got just above 27%, Marie Le Pen closely behind with just over 23%. The Western countries seeking a war with Russia to dismember it and put an end to the multipolar world, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro says. The West is coordinating economic, diplomatic, and political efforts in the big war against Russia. We say that from Venezuela. They are seeking the war to dismember Russia into parts and put an end to the hopes for a multipolar war world, Maduro said late Friday. A Russian recon team consisting of commandos killed in an infamous neo-Nazi leader in eastern Ukraine Monday 
According to the Russian Ministry of Defense, the recon team killed Taras uh, Babanich, the, ne- the neo-Nazi leader who was accused by Moscow of causing hundreds of civilian deaths in eastern Ukraine during the hostilities in 2014. Babanich was reportedly killed five kilometers south from the city of Izium in Ukraine's Kharkov region. Elite special forces from the UK and the US have been present in Ukraine since the beginning of hostilities with Russia in late February, a source in the French intelligence community reportedly told Le Figaro reporter last week. The claim was reported by the newspaper's senior international correspondent Saturday, the day when British Prime Minister Boris Johnson made a surprise visit to Kiev. In your Earth and Science news, material originating from beyond the reaches of our solar system may be resting on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean after a meteor that arrived from another solar system brought it there, Vice Motherboards reports, citing a memo by the U.S. Space Command. According to the media outlet, the meteor exploded in the sky near Papua New Guinea back in January 2014, and it is possible that it sprinkled interstellar debris into the ocean. In your pop culture news, the man accused of shooting Lady Gaga's dog walker was accidentally released from a Los Angeles jail, the sheriff's department reported. The accused, James Howard Jackson, who was being held on attempted murder, was accidentally released due to a clerical error. Get back to that. Your crazy story of the day, a traveler told the transportation security administration officers at Boston's Logan International Airport that he did not know he had a long blade inside his cane. The traveler said he had no idea the blade was in there, TSA spokesperson Dan Velez said in a tweet. After he was questioned by Massachusetts State Police, the traveler was released and allowed to continue on his journey. Weird. Your holidays today, National Pet Day, National 8-Track Tape Day, National Submarine Day, and Holy Monday. And also World Parkinson's Disease Day, all those suffering with it. Today in history, Napoleon abdicated the throne on April 11th, 1814. The first live sporting event broadcast on radio. Wish we knew what years these happened, producer Eddie. The Ugandan dictator Idi Admin is overthrown. Apollo 13 launched to the moon. I know that one, 1969. And then U.S. President Barack Obama met Cuban leader Raul Castro in Panama. Those are your headlines for Monday, April 11th, 2022. Yeah, the whole point of today in history is to put the year there. (laughs) Just say it. Otherwise, it looks like it all happened today. Right. It's like everything happened on this <laughs> this date. Apollo 13, launch to the moon, folks. Here we go. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw over the weekend. I was talking about it with um with you before, but um uh 60 Minutes released this um this wonderful in-depth our uh, piece uh-huh. with Scott Pelley, who said we got we got into we got access into the war rooms of President Volodymyr Zelensky. And you see him like walking around with him and it's like, and he even says in the very beginning, like how this man went from a comedian to a world-renowned hero. And I was just like, still as according comedian. to who? Yeah, still as a comedian to me. It's yeah. just the jokes aren't funny anymore because they're getting all those people killed. Exactly. But yeah, so it's going to be interesting. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet because it just came out. 
But um, I will have a thorough review for you tomorrow. <laughs> to, as, as Dan Abrams says, I watched it so you didn't have to. So, yeah. That's going to be, man. Th- any analysis of Zelensky, especially from the standpoint of Western media, always has this major hole in the coverage. Because they don't want to deal with the neo-Nazis in the country. They don't want to deal with the coup that took place in 2014. And so at the point where you ignore all of that, like where you don't even put that in, or you try to make this argument that NATO is love and light, um, then they make, you know, it's like leaves this kind of huge hole in any analysis of what is taking place to give people a real conception of it. So instead, it's, yeah, Zelensky is a great man, as opposed to Zelensky dragged his country to war that they shouldn't be in, that he knew behind the scenes that they weren't going to be part of NATO. He just wouldn't say it. That is not indicative of a great man to me. I mean, in my head, my head space, you have a philosophical responsibility to do what is in the best interest of your constituents. Otherwise, why are you getting elected? And I get there's all grandiose ideas in people's heads, so fair enough. But all things equal from the standpoint of a person putting you in that office, they're not putting you in office for grandiose ideas. They're putting you in office. This person is going to represent the best interests for me and my countrymen. And when you get somebody who's basically a puppet who knows, knows completely, not going to win it, not going to get assistance from the West, in regards to any of this. And the agreements that he now wants to make are basically the agreements that Russia wanted in the beginning. It's a tragedy. Call it what it is. I mean, it, it's, it's a slap in the face is not the right word for it. But the fact that it didn't have to take place and all of these people are basically dying is just uh, cataclysmically bad. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, great man. as, as we, we, had a, we had a Fault Lines foursome on Friday. I don't know if you guys saw. Because um, I always, always re- the best kind, right? I always, I always, <laughs> always the best kind. Always the best kind. Because um, I had a replay. Um, I always, <laughs> for those that don't know, I, I replay the episodes on my YouTube channel. And there's like a little, um, we call it the Fault Lines Neighborhood Bar. Uh-huh. Um, where What was that response? Because my mom hit me like immediately. She was like, that show was phenomenal. I was like, really? She's like, oh, my God. Oh, well, I mean, I'm already up to almost 2,000 views on that on my channel. Nice. Yeah, because, I mean, I think people, but I think also having that dialogue, too, is a lot of fun. Um, well, it's an interesting dialogue that needs to be had that you can't really have in a way. Well, and, that, and that's where, when we were talking about, you know, for example, when he went to parliament, to the, to the uh, Greek parliament, or, right. to the Greek parliament with uh, an Azov member, um, which I also didn't know that Greeks per capita lost the most people to yeah. Nazis. Um, so kind of a little of a, bad, uh, you know, taste in their mouth from World War II. And the conversation um, of why he did that right. is a really good conversation. And so we were talking, you know, oh, does it, was, the whole debate was, did he know what he was doing or was he just that dumb? And we kind of came <laughs> to a number of different ideas which could have worked for any of them. Excuse me, any of them. But one of the things, though, too, I think, is when you, when you think, for example, like months before all of this, you had Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz saying, you need to come out and say that you're going to be neutral. Right. And what did he do? He did the complete opposite. And he's like, we're ready to join NATO. Yes. And they're like, what the hell, dude? And honestly, I think that's where you, he knew, in my mind, like I said, as I play this like a movie, that he knew he was a puppet. But the only way to make himself maybe believe that he wasn't a puppet was by going against the grain and people telling him to do something. He does the opposite. And now he's really feeling the backlash from all of this. And by the way, I'm consistent on this. I thought the same thing about Armenian president, Pashyan, when he basically got himself into a war 
um, in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Where it's like, dude, there's no potential for you to win this. What are you doing? Right. And mind you, he ended up staying in power shockingly. I mean, the people were trying to off him. On the day after that, it's like you know, the day after he resigned. But uh, the day after he, um, he failed in regards to the war. But I guess for this, yeah, this is tragedy on steroids. I mean, like I look at this and think, oh, my God, this did not need to happen. And then I think to myself, did they know? And the answer is, of course, they knew it was a red line. So it's like for all of these years, these guys are doing something that they know is going to put them at odds with Russia on this. And they keep doing it. I mean, say what you will about Donald Trump. At least he understood like Russia and China and like him talking about the intellectual property being stolen from China. He understood Putin and his mentality on certain things and met with these people. He, he did a whole deal with Kim Jong-un, okay, as far as the, the nuclear weapons that they were firing off there. Say up. what you will about Donald Trump and him being, a you know, a, a dummy. However, it, it, this didn't surmount to that. And I think that with the Biden administration, just literally, they opened the door and let Zelensky walk through it, knowing yes. that what was going to happen. Had that been Donald Trump, he would have been like, yo, 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 no, 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 you cannot do this. By the way, not just knowing, intentionally on some level, potentially want it. Yeah. That's yeah, the part like, that people don't come, like to touch. through the door. Yeah. yeah. They, they don't like to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But we've shown you the clips of the guy who's working with Zelensky that said the only way to go to NATO is through Russia. Meaning right. they understood on some level, okay, this is stuff that's, that's basically heating up and this is going to create a provocation. And so if you're the U.S., and again, I don't even think China can be ignored in this conflict because these guys are allies and it's, you know, is something similar going to happen to Taiwan? I mean, if you think yeah. about it, where... Well, you have Pelosi going there this week. Exactly. You have this situation. I, I, I'm wondering if a lot of this stuff is based on globalism hitting the skits, where they look at it and say it is existential for China to take either economic, diplomatic, or militarily um, dominant position over us in the world, in the global community. We prefer to have Europe more dependent on us in regards to gas, energy, et cetera, et cetera. And in doing this, is this this kind of breaking away of the world where you create these two separate halves using provocations in a geopolitical context to do it? And so whereas now you have Russia, we're dealing with the Ukraine issue on the border, would it be Taiwan and China dealing with that issue on the border where they can try to get the world to kind of um, unconnect from China? Look, I would say this. These guys have taken very stringent ideological positions on this as opposed to the best interests of their public. Can your public deal with the fact that you're not getting gas? Yeah or nay? Or can yeah. you deal with not getting coal or wheat? Are you okay with the famines? Like all of this stuff didn't either they didn't care about or they didn't price in when they started this, let's have an economic war, shock and awe in mm -hmm. economic sense. Maybe you should have thought about whether or not your countries could substantiate what you were trying to do in a political space. And well, at and this point, it doesn't people, seem they did. These people are narcissistic, psychopathic sycophants. I think they're sociopaths. We can fight over that if you want. No, I'm, I'm, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm They're in the cluster B personality. <laughs> right, right. Sociopaths, psychopaths, what have you. But um, then there's, there's not very much of a difference between them. But yeah, I think they're sociopathic sycophants um, because why in the hell do we care where Ukraine gets his gas? Why in the hell do I care where little Latvia is, how, how, they're burnt, how they're starting their fires? I don't care. What I care about is how much my gas is here. And that's the problem is that these sycophants have zero, it, it's not even on their radar to fix stuff here. But God forbid when you start asking that question, oh, Putin puppet, oh, how dare you? Oh, 
Rus- you're a Russophobe or not? Or you're oh no, <laughs> no, that Russophobe. You're pro Russia. Yeah, you're pro Russia. I don't know what the, what the pro would be. <laughs> they use sorry. that as a swear battle. It's, it's seven a.m. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry for me asking how to how to lower my gas prices. That makes me pro Putin. Isn't that okay? A, isn't that something? Yeah, I, that's the way they look at it. That's the way they talk about it. But look, let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Ronzak. Back in the move. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm Farron Franzak, joined by my co-host, Jamarl Thomas. It is 721, and you know what that means. It is time for Jamal to tell us, what's your fault, bro? My fault. And maybe fault is not the right word for it. It's just fascinating, to put it mildly. A lot of events took place over the weekend. Of course, the Ukraine issue is still going on. There were the French elections, which Emmanuel Macron... Macron. Macron, his Macron. croissant. Yeah, Macron didn't necessarily do as well as I think he thought he was going to do. And look, I would point that more so to the notion of what is taking place on the ground in France and how the issue in Ukraine is basically going to affect them that much more so. Again, inflation in Europe through the roof. Cost in regards to from the standpoint of the UK. I was even listening this morning how there are certain products that they just no longer have access to. Sunflower um, things showing up or missing in the stores. That is only going to get worse. I was even looking at some of the famine reports that they are expecting to take place as Ukraine has dramatically dropped the amount of wheat that it exports. So there's that going on. And the political upheaval from that that I have predicted that will take place, not just in Europe, but in the United States, as that stuff gets that much more specific in regards to the things that they are losing um, and the pain that they are feeling in their wallets and their pocketbooks. The Pakistan thing has grabbed the world's attention also. And I got to be honest, I was fascinated by this, even going back to last week when this it was taking place. Prime Minister Imran Khan, the opposition comes out and says, we are going to have a no confidence vote to get rid of Imran Khan. Imran Khan doesn't wait for this and basically said this is a soft coup attempt. They're trying to take me out of office. The United States doesn't necessarily like that I have a relationship with China and Russia. I mean, hell, when the invasion took place, Imran Khan was sitting in Moscow, if I remember correctly, and the pictures attest to. And so you have this situation where he's like, this is a coup. He goes to the president. He gets the president. Uh, I'm sorry, parliament throws out to no confidence vote first. Um, people within his party. Then he goes to the president and say, hey, you know, the people in parliament, they were trying to throw me out. We need to dissolve parliament. We need to get rid of it. We can't go along like this. They're trying to get rid of me. And they are being pushed by the United States to do so. Let's have an election. The president says, I agree and dissolve the parliament that was trying to get rid of Imran Khan. Oh, I love those political machinations and intrigue. Awesome. Supreme Court gets involved. And the Supreme Court basically says, hey, that no confidence vote. Yeah, you can't get rid of that. You can't poo-poo that. You got to actually deal with that. In which case, a no confidence vote was called. And on Sunday, Imran Khan was deposed. It was a vote of 241, let me get the exact vote total, right here, which required 172 votes for the 342 parliament to pass. It was supported by 174 politicians, basically two more than what was required. Imran Khan is no more as the prime minister. At some point, elections will be held and the parliament is going to have to choose who they want for their leading spot. Now, let's get into the intrigue. From the standpoint of um, Imran Khan, this is a soft coup. That his interactions in Moscow and Russia and the closeness that he had to those countries basically created an apoplectic reaction 
in the United States. And in the same way that they were browbeating India, China, and many of the other countries to get on board in regards to this Russophobic um, attacks and this economic war, well, he clearly is not going to do it. He clearly wouldn't do it. And whereas the U.S. may not necessarily have any kind of power in Russia or in China or some of these other countries, we have a very close relationship with the Pakistani military. And for that matter, the Pakistan or some of the um, politicians in that country. And so even though Imran Khan has moved to the east, well, you have a lot of that country that is firmly entrenched in the West. And so from his standpoint, it is a coup that's running an election, and I am going to show my legitimacy to be prime minister through the fires of an election. Well, he will get that opportunity, but he would not get that opportunity of running as the prime minister because, again, he has been deposed. Is there reality to what he's saying? And the truth of the matter is, yes, it could be. It very well could be. I mean, think about it for yourself for the moment. If we had tight relationships with Pakistan, the military and some of the political elite, would we feel some kind of way about him sitting in Moscow at the time when this is taking place? Something that the U.S. has basically declared economic war and the media in this country has gone on a wartime footing. Would the U.S. political leaders have issues with that? And would that incentivize them to get rid of him, given the opportunity? If you needed to grease somebody's hands, how much would you have to expend to grease somebody's hands? And how many people would you basically need? You didn't need a huge number because it was only a few people that were willing to basically jump in line in order to get rid of him regarding opposition. So is it possible? Yes, it is amply possible that this is true. You also got to pay attention to China in the situation from the standpoint of the U.S. context. Pakistan and China has a relationship. And China even comes out with a certain degree of condemnation, making the point of saying in global times, this in no way would diminish the relationship between Pakistan and China. Why is China saying that? China is saying that because the relationship exists. And in their heads, part of the reasoning that they may be doing this is because if you had a president or a prime minister that was more amenable to U.S. interests, would they be less inclined to do one act after the other? Bless you. One act after the other um, in order to prevent China from getting that much more ingrained into the country. Meaning, if you had a person who was more in your orbit and more skeptical, let's say China and Russia, you have less of an opportunity for China and Russia to ingratiate themselves into the country. That's the most natural thing in the world. Will they do it? Meaning, will Pakistan try to dance between raindrops? Yes. And even in the statement, the military leaders of Pakistan who came out who were critical of Imran Khan tried to do that. Russia has real security concerns. However, we don't like the invasion. The United States is a great partner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't want to alienate anybody in this process. We want to maintain relationships with everybody. However, Khan needs to go. Now, we will see if this is legit, right? Um, but at the, at the end of the day, and the most important part of this is, yes, he has a clear point that there's a potential that this was a coup. On the other side of that, can you have a situation where the opposition sees Imran Khan take these actions and think to themselves, here's a way to get rid of him? A, the U.S. will back it, first point, especially with him being in Moscow and more in their orbit. The military will back it, looking at the military being, again, more closely aligned with the United States. Is it possible that the political leaders in the country just by themselves did it, especially if from their standpoint, we don't want to get hit by sanctions. We don't want to be on the bad end of various sanctions. It is very possible that the people who are in the government itself did it because they wanted to get rid of them and thought this was a great opportunity to do so with all of the ire and anger that is coming out of the United States, that that particular position of removing him would be backed. It is hard to know exactly what is happening. Look, personally, I do lean more towards the side that the U.S. might have had something to do with it. It is not beyond the pale. It is the most natural thing in the world for us to look at him and think to themselves, yeah, that guy needs to move. He is not necessarily in our best interest. That's a sphere of influence that we control. And he is basically thumbing us in the eye going to Moscow as we are doing this economic war. Look, both of those things 
could be possible. And on some level, both of those things could have been taking place at the same time. Either way, there's all sorts of political intrigue. As you know, Pakistan is nukes. There are 220 million people there. And we'll see what happens going forward. And we'll also see what this relationship looks like with China going forward. Not to mention the upcoming election that is inevitably going to take place, um, where Khan is basically going to try to get back in office. And another big headline this morning is President Joe Biden is meeting with Indian President Modi today. He's trying to browbeat him into getting enough. Yeah. Because, yep. you know, India was saying they were coming up with this notion of paying in rubles early on, like the very first reports. And you had representatives go there that basically got nothing out of it from um, from the standpoint of the United States. They weren't able to get what they wanted. And that's when the reports start coming out saying, hey, India is thinking about a deal in rubles. Now, what does that mean for the economic war where the ruble is basically gained on the dollar? Gained on the euro. And now India is thinking about one of the biggest countries, 1.5 billion people. Well, and last month they brought, they bought 3 million barrels of crude from Russia. And there's that. To, so, to make sure that they were yeah. stable. So Biden is going to browbeat Modi into falling in line with the economic sanctions. But war. here's the other thing that's going to be interesting. And what Modi has on his side, he's like, yo, uh, Ukraine is still getting all, almost two to three billion a month. From uh, Russian, from the Russian Transit pipeline. Piece. That's right. He's like, uh, Germany, they haven't stopped getting uh, Russian gas. Neither have we, I don't so, think. Yeah, we haven't I mean, either. I need to look that so up. So his but... whole thing is, is, wait a minute. So I have to stop, but these other countries don't have to? Yeah. And that's kind of the big question that the, the United States has left itself in between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Right. It makes no sense. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean... <clears throat> I don't know if Modi is going to shoot himself in the face in order to back up something that the United States and the West got themselves involved in. And like I said, if they weren't able to get India to basically screw over its population the first time around with its representatives, I don't know what they think Biden is going to do. But we'll see. I mean, that's, that's an interesting headline. Yeah. I mean, because Biden, this is what they realize is this economic war is not going according to plan. We thought that we can crash their economy. We thought we could destroy um, this idea of uh, Putin being in office. We thought we could do all of that stuff, this mm -hmm. economic warfare. And what basically took place is most of the world is not on board with it. The bigger countries like China, India, et cetera, countries that you would need on some level to be on board with it because they're such huge markets, they're not on board with it. The U.S. is not getting what they want. And there's political instability in the various countries as a result of the actions they've taken. And so in France, you have Le Pen who's gaining on him. Serbia, um, you have that president that basically won with more numbers and more dominant. And Orban even became more dominant. Mm -hmm. So, look, I think Europe is going to hit all sorts of political instability as inflation and all of that stuff eats into wages and makes people's lives that much more miserable. And we already see what it's looking like for Biden in the U.S. and Democrats. And I think a lot of this truly was instigated by COVID. Yes. You saw a global supply Agreed. chain breakdown and you saw people realizing, look, I can't care right now about people over here, over there. I'm worried about me here. And there's nothing wrong about being selfish. And that's the thing is, is when you hear nationalistic or, you know, he's a he's a nationalist. It used to be a very, very bad word. And now I think, no, it means that I care about my own people and my own country. Yeah. You know, and that's where I think this whole idea of the globalization that these Democrats have loved to do, starting with the Clinton administration, it has truly come home to backfire. And the only people that get screwed over are your own people. And here you think that you're, you know, you're helping everybody around the world, but you're in turn missing out on helping your own people. Agreed. Very much agreed on that one. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We have Professor Burundi. Love that guy. Absolutely love that guy. He's joining us at 7.30. Back in a moment. Fault lines. 
Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself kicking around in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM, to the chagrin of many, apparently. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. We have 348 watching. Share this Ooh, video that's a lot. to your mama, your daddy, your cousin, your dog, to anybody that wants a contextual view of their world. Share this video. 600 is the goal. We smashed up to 560-something on Friday. That was the highest I think we've gotten up to this point. Oh, wow. So we're trying. It was like, oh, clawing our way to 600. Um, but look, that is the objective. We're trying to get our guests on. And once we get our guests on, Mirandi, we'll go into this conversation on the JCPOA, for one, where apparently there are reports that are coming out that the United States wanted additional items. Um, and that this was, yeah, U.S. imposing new JCPOA terms. So that'll be interesting to get into um, with. And yeah, the events and the political intrigue that are taking place in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a fascinating story. I was sitting there. It's almost like with popcorn. I mean, it's like move and counter move. Um, one group has the political power to try to get rid of the prime minister. They take steps to do it. The prime minister, trying to prevent himself from being taken down, basically has a member of his party that heads to the parliament to eliminate um, the no confidence vote. Okay, we're going to shoo this. Then the president and then says, all right, those people tried to get rid of me, get rid of them. We're going to take this in an election. What needs to be understood, too, is the reason that he's willing to go into the election, because in his head, using that argument of America did this or America did that, the elites in that country and the military may be more in line with the U.S. The population, not so much. And so for him to say, these people are trying to take us out in a soft coup, that's not that different than them saying, the Democrats here saying Trump is working with the Russians. This is just their way of trying to smear his political opposition as he goes about that run, knowing how the public sentiment towards the United States is basically not that great. So whereas the elites may be able to get all certain gains from their incestuous relationship with the U.S. or the military may get these gains, the population is not necessarily on board for that level of U.S., um, let's say, alignment. And it's far more skeptical of it, which is the reason why he wanted an election in the first place. He believed my fate is better off in the political sense if I can win this election. That's where my legitimacy is going to be conferred. I am never going to get these people on my side within the context of elites or in parliament. That's the way I took it. I, I, it's a fascinating story, man. It's a very fascinating story. Now, one of the things that I actually did want to talk about, um, it was going to be my monologue, but we're going to push it up since we're, we're waiting and hopefully we can get them. But um, you remember last Friday, correct, when you had Brian Stelter. I do not. No memory um, <laughs> of it. No memory of it. Brian Stelter. He was kind of raked through the coals by a college freshman where he was asking him like, hey, um, you know, you guys have reported on the Hunter Biden laptop. You guys reported on Russia Gate. You guys, you know, focused on all this stuff. Jussie, Jussie yeah, Smollett. Jussie Smollett. Um, you know, you had all of this happening, and over the weekend it was interesting because uh, texting with a friend, they were like, "Oh, you know, the ruble still hasn't bounced back," and I was like, "Wait a minute, you sure about that one?" And they're like, "And they were like, no, no, the ruble still it's it's still in the in the in the dumps and blah 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 blah." And I was like. Do me a favor, just Google rubles to dollar. And here they're like, oh, this is this is not accurate. And and, and all of a sudden it was like the backtracking. Uh -huh. And I think it was at like 73 or 74 at the time. Right. 
And it got me thinking like, oh, wow, you know, you really don't see, for example, either side covering exactly what's going on as far as the economy in Russia and how these sanctions are not working. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of YouTubers that I've learned to, to, to follow and watch on who are YouTubers in Russia. And they said they, they and they go through every single day of their life and they show like what's been changing since the war in Ukraine started and since all of these sanctions started to happen. And what's so interesting about it all is you have um, many of them saying the only difference that I've seen is there are like it, when you go to the mall, a lot of the places are closed, like Levi Jeans, Zara, Old Navy, like all of these, you know, uh, retail stores are closed. And it was over the weekend that you had Brian Stelter on his um, his show where he 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 covers the media. And it was a, it was a segment that truly backfired. It was he brought in a Yale researcher where their department actually goes through and they look at the amount of time and 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 the the number of segments that they do regarding certain stuff. So you remember the kid asked him about the Hunter Biden laptop. Right. They asked him even about like the uh, the JCPOA which is in another segment. And here Brian Stelter who said, you know, to this kid, I don't know what channel you're talking about when he was asked <laughs> about this. Well, this Yale researcher he thought was going to sit there and be like, yes, Brian Stelter, you are just the, the, the light in journalism. Oh, no, it completely backfired. Take a listen. So, Josh, you all call this partisan coverage filtering. Um, and it, basically, you're proving what we've sensed for a while, which is Fox viewers are in the dark about bad news for the GOP. That's right. Fox and CNN cover different issues. And... Fox News predominantly covers issues that, that make the GOP look good and, and make Democrats look bad. And, and on the flip side, CNN en engages in this partisan coverage filtering as, as well that we find. For example, during this time, the Abraham Accords were signed, and these were the agreements where Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain signed a, a major peace agreement. And we see that Fox News covered this really major accomplishment about 15 times more than, than CNN did. So we established both networks are, are really engaging in this partisan coverage filtering. It's, it's not about one side, it's about the media writ large. I think you're engaging in some both sides isn't there, Josh. Not trying to lay out a, a moral equivalency. It's, it's not about what an objective standard is. It's really about how all networks do engage in this. And in order for viewers to get a, a realistic picture of the world, we, we need viewers to see all types of information. And, Unfortunately, what we find in this study is that the viewers don't want to engage in, in watching all sides. So as David mentioned, we see that viewers, we pay them for four weeks to, to watch CNN. But then after those payments stop, they, they go back to watching Fox News. So even though we try to incentivize viewers to watch both Fox and, and CNN, they don't want to, to engage in that, that hard work. Mm -hmm. they, so with that said, here you see where they both engage in the same damn thing. Yes. But again, going back to the, the, the elections in Pakistan and, you know, even the elections in France, barely did you really see any coverage on that over the weekend. And that's where I look at a lot of my European friends who have told me, you know, hey, we used to have like tiny little segments in our newscast where it was like, what's going around here? What's going on around there? And then they would have these 
huge blocks of foreign policy in their newscasts. Here on local news, folks, as I had used to work at, we, it was completely the opposite. Everything was local news. Then you had a big chunk of national news. And then you barely touched international news, which is why, again, many Americans, they are, are you know, stereotypes sometimes are a true thing. Why many people call us narcissistic and we're only about, only about ourselves. We're not in tune with what's happening with the rest of the world, like these elections in Pakistan. Let's do this. We have our guests. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go to Morundi right now. Professor, thank you for joining us. The guest or the voice that you guys are about to hear is Professor Mohammed Morundi. He's an English professor of literature and orientalism at the University of Tehran. Professor, thank you for joining us this morning. How are you doing? Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning to you. Although here it's an afternoon, but good morning to you. Good morning. You. So these 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 uh, uh, elections in Pakistan, uh, kind of your initial thoughts and and what you make of all of it. Many calling this another coup. U.S. coup. Well, it is quite significant that uh, the what the, the what the Pakistani, the former Pakistani Prime Minister Mr. Imran Khan said about U.S. interference in the uh, internal affairs of Pakistan, which is not that which is not new. It's not something that we don't expect. It's something that the United States has been doing for many many decades everywhere. So there's no surprise there, but. I think it's um, pretty evident in this particular case that the United States was very unpleased that uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan went to Moscow uh, when the uh, war in Ukraine started and uh, had been a- was able to uh, sign some significant economic deals with the Russian government on that trip. So that is significant. But I think there are also other issues here as well. And that is that, and this is also linked partially to the war, but also partially to global warming and partially to the the whole economic crisis that has been brewing for quite a long time across the globe, including you know what you saw in the United States 2008 and 2009, corona, quantitative easing, now this war. I think with the rising prices, fuel prices, grains, wheat, I think we're going to see a lot of instability across the world, uh, not just in the global south, but probably in Europe as well. So I I think that there has definitely been U.S. interference in this election, but I think it's going to, we're just going, it's just going to increase instability in Pakistan. But I also think that there is a link to this whole economic crisis that we're about to see get much worse for ordinary people. Agreed. Um, like Jen Saki said, we got to pay for our values. And Europe and the United States is definitely going to be paying for somebody's values. I don't think they're just the typical Americans. Um, from your standpoint, can you give us some kind of context in regards to the Pakistani population? Um, I do want to move to the JCPOA, but I definitely want to get, I'm trying to understand, Imran Khan basically wanted to have an election. I mean, the entire political maneuvering that was taking place in Pakistan at that point was boiling down to I need to get to the people. The people will put me back in office and using the idea that the opposition is basically associated and working with the United States as one of his widgets and ways to basically do it. What is the sentiment of the Pakistan population towards the United States? I mean, he wouldn't have done that if he didn't necessarily think that that was a route for him to basically win. Well, opponents of the former prime minister and supporters of the former prime minister, many of them have legitimate arguments to make. Uh, although 
some of his opponents obviously are tools of the United States, but not all of them. And many of them are uh, unhappy with the economic situation. But And Pakistan is, it has a huge population. It has a population of well over 200 million. The United States just 40 years ago had roughly the population of Pakistan today. So this is the sort of population we're talking about. Um, the, the, the big picture here for me is that Pakistan, under this new administration, whoever comes to power, is going to have huge challenges because um, Mr. Imran Khan, his uh, critical stance towards the United States is, um, is something that will go down well with many people. And the fact that the United States has left footprints Although his opponents say he's using this as an excuse, but you know, right, rightly or wrongly, it's going to go down well with many people. So I think Pakistan is going down the road of instability, and uh, instability at a time when the price of grain is going up, the price of fuel has gone up, uh, I don't think that's going to look good. I want to get into the JCPOA um, for the time being that we have you left, uh, for the time we have left with you. Um, so I was looking at some of the reports that came out this morning. It says, uh, I'll just read it. Iran's foreign minister on April 10th said Washington is, quote, imposing new conditions, unquote, in the negotiations to restore the 2015 nuclear agreement. Quote, on the issue of lifting sanctions, the United States interested in proposing and imposing new conditions outside the negotiations, unquote, state agency. Our, our IRNA quoted Amir Abadulian um, as saying, quote, in the last two or three weeks, the American side have made excessive demands as some con- contradict the paragraphs of the text, unquote. What is going on with this? I mean, what are the new demands that they are basically saying that Washington is asking for? And what is, how do you see the negotiations going as they proceed? Well, I can't get, in, I can't go into details because obviously these are ongoing discussions. But I think uh, one major problem is that the United States, near the end of the negotiations, when things were approaching, um, a, uh, a an agreement, uh, they suddenly stopped. And it sort of coincided when, when the Russians uh, requested uh, or demanded uh, uh, that uh, certain their, their requirements are met. And then the Americans started shifting blame, blame on the Russians, but the Russians were, that the problem that the Russians had were both, were, were, uh, was both legitimate um, and what was easily resolved when Mr. Amir Abdullahian traveled to Moscow, the issue was completely resolved. The Russians were concerned that its companies that were involved in the JCPOA itself, in implementing the JCPOA, that if they're sanctioned, they can't carry out their obligations. So they wanted um, a, something from the United States saying that they will not impede Russians' uh, role in the JCPOA. So that was resolved. But then after that, the United States suddenly shifted gear. And it probably has to do with internal U.S. politics and uh, the influence of the Israeli lobby as well um, and those who are deeply antagonistic towards Iran, although the U.S. political establishment is almost united in its uh, irrational hostility towards Iran. So suddenly, we were on the, while we were on the verge, or what seemed to be on the verge of an agreement, the United States began to stall. And then we also saw that the United States imposed new sanctions 
on Iran, which was quite surprising to people in Iran. They also confiscated um, two ships of oil earlier from the Iranians, and they refused to release them. So they weren't showing goodwill. Imposing new sanctions violated the spirit of the negotiations, at least. And since then, it's been the Iranians have been waiting for the Americans to 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 move forward, but the Americans seem stuck. It seems like the political atmosphere in Washington uh, is as such that uh, the 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 Biden uh, presidency or the Biden um, administration can't make a decision. I think they're they're afraid of taking the decisions that are necessary for the agreement to be achieved. That's very interesting. So from the standpoint of them being concerned about the agreements, by the way, what effect, you made the point about Russia coming in and wanting security guarantees around, um, I guess, oil or around certain items associated with their influence or their being part of the JCPOA. So in that context, from the standpoint of the Russian, what was their interest? What was the thing that Russia basically wanted? They wanted some kind of security guarantees around gas production? What was their issue? No, no, no. The issue had to do with the JCPOA itself, the nuclear deal. So, for example, the Russians are involved in the construction of uh, nuclear power plants or, or uh, in Iran. Or the Russians are also, uh, if if a deal is agreed, then highly enriched uranium, which would be taken... Uh, which would be exported from Iran, would be taken by the Russians. And if Russian shipping companies or Russian energy companies are sanctioned, then those ships can't come to Iran to take uh, that enriched uranium. Or um, Russian companies cannot fulfill their obligations within the framework of the nuclear deal with regards to Iran's nuclear program. So the JCPOA can't be implemented um, uh, with regards to Iran's nuclear, yes, if, if if sanctions are imposed on those particular elements of the Russian uh, nuclear program or shipping company. How is Iran going to ensure that the U.S. stays with the deal this time around? I mean, it has to be on the table in regards to one of the agreements that take place. Cause... Well, that's one of the problems that it still exists. Yeah, so, well, that's one of the problems that still exists. The Iranians want guarantees that if the United States pulls out again, like under Trump, that uh, things don't fall apart immediately, so that the whims of some American president can't simply create some sort of regional or international crisis again. And that has not yet been fully resolved either. So that's one of the issues. Uh, Iran wants certain um, guarantees for foreign companies that invest in Iran, uh, that invest in Iran, and if, if the Americans suddenly decide to pull out again, that these foreign companies aren't burnt. So the Americans are stonewalling there. And uh, again, we, we, we don't know what's going to happen. It seems that the Biden administration doesn't have the, uh, the courage or the, the, the will to make those necessary decisions. Because for the Iranians, it's very clear. If, they, if the United States wants Iraq to, Iran to go back to implementing the nuclear deal, then they have to go back to fully implementing the nuclear deal. They can't expect Iran to go back all the way and then they go back halfway. Right. So given the assurances, or let's say if those assurances aren't provided, that basically there is no way to unilaterally extricate oneself from the deal itself. However that is, and you know, I don't entirely have a clear understanding of how that would work, but if that architecture... So for example, so for example let's say you want to invest in Iran and then the... Uh, the U.S. president decides to pull the plug. 
and then your company has already invested in the same a, 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 a large amount of money to develop, I don't know, some factory or some mine or something or some oil installation, then what happens? Do you suddenly lose all your money? Is the operation shut down? Uh, if if that's the case, then no one's going to then that's no one's going to invest in in Iran. So the Americans can't simply have a state of affairs where they can just pull the plug whenever they want, and then rule the ruin the lives of whoever was investing investing Iran investing in Iran based upon the the nuclear deal. Thousand percent agree with you. So Iran wants assurances for those companies or those entities that come to Iran that they are just not destroyed because some U.S. president decides that he wants to leave the deal. Elizabeth would agree with you. And I guess my thing is the JCPOA originally was trying to prevent that also. And if you remember, it wasn't Europe that basically decided to pull out. It was the United States. And the U.S. had such economic presence um, around the globe that many of the European countries pulled out, meaning those companies. Meaning despite those companies not necessarily being pushed to do that in Europe, they still did it because of their relationships or their economic relationships with the United States. That's kind of what I mean when I'm saying the architecture in my head. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. But the thing is that other, there are other countries that are more independent to the United States. So, for example, the Chinese, if they want to invest in Iran, they would want to know what happens the day after. If, again, the United, you know, one morning we wake up and some U.S. president just simply wants to pull out of the deal again because it's already happened to him. What I'm trying to get at, I guess, is how do you get those assurances? And what does it look like in real physical matter, reality terms, where JCPOA and events of 2015 don't repeat themselves? That's all I'm getting at. And I don't know what that looks like. That's exactly what's being negotiated. It's a very complicated negotiating process. And uh, but the Americans... The American government has shifted slightly on this issue, but not enough. So for the Iranians, you know, they're saying that you know, if the Americans pull out of the deal, it just can't. They can't. They cannot just simply pull out of the deal without there being implications, without there being a price. So on the one hand, the Iranian nuclear program has to be um, uh, able to return back to normal if the Americans are not willing to play ball. And those people who've invested in Iran because they have a legitimate right to do so, with or without sanctions, that they can, that they're not just suddenly burned because the U.S. president decides one day to change his his uh, his stance. So the the deal is is complicated. Uh, there are many lawyers involved in the negotiations, obviously, and uh, there are many details. But you know, until we have a deal, uh, I can't. Uh, you know, there's not much that I can much more that I can say. Uh, but, you know, we have to see. Hopefully, the United States will recognize that it is to its benefit. But one thing I would like to point out, and I think this is very important for your listeners, the Americans have always been, some of the Europeans have always been saying that we've reached a dangerous point, that, you know, we've, we have to, you know, we, they set deadlines. After this certain deadline, it'd be too late. You know, the nuclear program in Iran has just gone too far ahead, and or it's too dangerous now. But now, look, Suddenly, they've all gone home. They've all gone quiet. The Iranian nuclear program is working. So it shows that their narrative on the threat of the Iranian nuclear program and all those artificial deadlines that they were declaring constantly that then we'll quit the negotiations and after this date, we won't accept anything anymore. All that was nonsense. That was just propaganda. It was them trying to put pressure on the negotiations. Absolutely. Last question. If they don't get 
those agreements. Well, and I guess it breaks into two parts. We have a minute left. Um, I was reading reports that basically say Iran has been shipping out oil at the same degree that it was before the sanctions have basically taken place. From the Iranian point of view, if they don't get those agreements from the U.S. on, look, you can't unilaterally pull out of this again, and considering that the oil production is basically back to where it was before all of this, are both sides willing to walk away? Well, Iran has always been willing to walk away, but Iran does want a solution. And the, the irony is that the United States is isolating itself at a time when it already has you know, very complicated relations with China. Its relationship with India isn't great. We, we see where India stands. With Russia, it has terrible relations now, and so do the Europeans. So the, you know, the Americans have to start asking themselves, do they want to uh, push Iran and other countries away from the United States and, and obviously bring them closer to each other as a result? If that's what the United States seeks to do, well, that's, they're, they're doing a pretty good job at it. So, so if the United States, you know, it, it, with this global crisis as it stands, Iran, the United States can't block Iran's oil production because if it does, the price of oil will go through the roof. Very good point. So the smart thing is for the United States is is to sign an agreement, decrease tensions, and then maybe in future the relationship between Iran and the United States could improve. Professor, thank you for this. Thank Always you, appreciate, um, Professor, you joining us. Professor uh, Mohammed Morandi, he's a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm sitting here with my co-host Baron Franzak. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I am your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, American Farron Franzak. That means, more likely than not, that you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Right on. Great conversation with Professor um, Modi. Um, not Modi. Jeez. We are talking about Modi before the break. <laughs> Modi is coming to visit Biden. Yeah, exactly. Professor Morandi. Professor yeah. <laughs> Morandi came to visit us. Now, I've always loved him on the show. And I've, I've been trying to get him for an interview for years. He's Oftentimes, he's on Western networks in these kind of adversarial interviews. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that. Because at the point where you can go into a lion's den, you know you're going into a lion's den. And you go there. It's like, I'm going to the place where danger awaits me. And you still go. Like, that gets across a certain level of confidence and capability of being able to make your point and being able to hold that point in hostile territory. Love the guy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love the guy. But let's do this. Let's get the headlines. In the news. In China, Wang Zhao, I think that's how that's pronounced, um, closed itself to most arrivals on Monday as China battles a major COVID-19 surge in its big eastern cities. Shanghai has seen some of the biggest rise with more than 26,000 cases announced on Monday, only 914 of which showed symptoms. The city of 26 million is under tight lockdown, which many residents confirmed or confined to their homes for up to three weeks as concern grows over the effect on the economy of China's largest city. Look, whatever you want to think about it, China has done a far better job on the issues of COVID. We have nearly a million people dead in this country at this point. Whereas these major lockdowns, yes, they are extreme by the same token that extremity was able to save a lot of lives. You pick and choose which one is more important to you, the number of lives that are saved or the um, conditions to which they have to live through in the short term. Up to you. Which one you think is more important? 
In national news, President Joe Biden will speak with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi today as Biden presses world leaders to take a hard line against Russia's Ukrainian invasion. India going neutral on this war has watched concern, and for the matter, China, while Russia's foreign ministry, Sergei Lavrov, praised India last month for abstaining from a UN vote to suspend Russia from its seat on the Human Rights Council over war crime allegations. Last month, India also bought 3 million barrels of crude from Russia to secure its own needs. The White House says that the meeting between Biden and Modi will be virtual. The last time this two spoke was in early March. And again, the U.S. has been sending envoys um, to, well, to India in order to try to get India to be on board. Well, that didn't work at all with Russia also sending envoys and with India and Russia having these conversations about whether or not oil is going to be priced in rubles. It is very, very interesting. But the key here is this disintegration or, or diminishment of soft power, meaning this isn't 2000 anymore. We call the U.S. and, um, um, and NATO gets itself into an issue. They put through this kind of economic war without necessarily determining whether or not they have the capability of sustaining the economic war. And you have plenty of countries like India, what, 1.5 million people, China, 1.3 million people, um, the BRIC countries, the countries in the Middle East that haven't necessarily got on board. And that just not got on board is not helping the West extricate from this situation that it calls. And so Saudi Arabia doesn't pick up the phone. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia has had their odds. The OPEC leaders don't increase the amount of gas or the amount of oil. What reason would they have to? The higher that the barrels are, the more money that they basically make in that process. And Europe is in a situation where it is unclear how it's going to go forward. Are you going to pay in rubles? One question. Where are you going to get the gas in order to change over? Second question. From the standpoint of inflation, cost of food and everything else, is your local population going to be okay with you taking certain decisions that made their lives that much more miserable and that much harder? Reports came out in the U.S. The U.S. is headed for a recession. And not just that, the $5,000 a day or a year extra that American families had to pay due to sanctions and due to um, issues with COVID and everything else, that stuff is only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. Soft power, diminishment. Despite recent visit to the country from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says President Joe Biden has no plan to visit Ukraine. Also, when asked about Biden's visit to South US-Mexico border, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said there was no trips planned at this time. Pay attention to the border. That's gonna be a big deal, especially if Biden gets rid of Title 42. Tensions are flaring up in France amid the presidential race with people taking to the streets and holding demonstrations in support of their candidates or protesting against their rivals. The first round of the presidential elections in France was Sunday with second set, thank you, for April 24th because no candidate gained a simple majority. As 97% of the vote has been counted, President Emmanuel Macron is just above 27%. Marie Le Pen is closely behind with just over 23%. Much closer race than the people thought it was going to be. As of Monday, Russia said it, it destroyed air defense systems in Ukraine over the weekend in a renewed push to gain air superiority and take out weapons Kiev has described as crucial ahead of a broad new offensive in the east. The Russian Defense Ministry spokesman said the military used cruise missiles to destroy four S-300 missile defense systems launchers on the southern outskirts of the central city of Dnipro, Dnipro region. He said about 25 Ukrainian troops were also hit by a Sunday strike. Egypt reports that its annual inflation rate surged past 12% in March, up 10% from February, largely because of the war in Ukraine, which has strained global markets and set oil prices to record highs. The Central Agency for Mobilization and Statistics data shows price hikes across many sectors from fuel, electricity, food items, to housing, medical services, and entertainment. Oh, that is going to be very difficult for them, especially knowing 
It, we'll come back to that. I've been in Egypt a few times. And some of these conversations I had, that is going to put pressure on a lot of the population in a way that it's not going to hit Europe and the U.S. That's, and they get like 100% of their grain from Ukraine, too. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, they've cut the grain production in half at this point. The amount that people are going to have to pay for it is going to go up because there's less of it. Inflation is going to take hold and be the rule. Yeah, that's that's greatly unfortunate. That's greatly unfortunate. The Palestinian Health Ministry reports that Israeli forces shot and killed a fourth Palestinian near the city of Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank. This is latest in a growing wave of violence that has erupted during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. The Israeli military reports it opened fire on a man throwing a firebomb at an Israeli vehicle driving on the West Bank Highway late Sunday. This is the fourth killing in the past 24 hours among an unarmed woman who was shot and killed at a military checkpoint near Bethlehem, another place I've been. In business and tech news, the richest man on the planet, Elon Musk, will not, NOT, be on the board of directors of his favorite social media network, Twitter. Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal said in a statement, quote, although the board and top management were excited to negotiate the risk and the process with Musk, that same morning, Musk, I'm sorry, that same morning, Musk allegedly said, quote, he will no longer be joining the board. That's unfortunate. I actually did want him to join the board. At least, you know, I wanted him to have more yeah, influence, especially. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Um, the man accused of shooting Lady Gaga's dog walker was accidentally released from a Los Angeles jail, the sheriff's department reported. The accused, James Howard Jackson, who's being held on an attempt of murder, was accidentally released due to, quote, a clerical error. Due to a clerical error. Think about that. The guy murdered somebody or severely shot somebody. Yeah. Um, how do you. <laughs> French bulldogs, mind you. Yeah. How do you accidentally let somebody up? A Colorado firefighter broke a Guinness Book of World Record by lifting a 193.2 pound Atlas stone 194 times in an hour. Dylan Magalia, a firefighter with Hygiene Fire Protection District in Boulder, Colorado, Hygiene Fire Protection District. I guess. Said he yeah. was flipping through the Guinness Book of World Records one day when he spotted a weightlifting challenge he couldn't resist. Magalera lifted a grand total of 37,470.8 pounds. He beat the previous record by about 8,000 pounds. The firefighter said he is now working towards breaking the Guinness Book of World Records involving Turkish kettlebells. You know how I can tell you're not Italian? Why? Because I'm screwing the name up. Poorly. Dylan Maraglia. <laughs> Maraglia. Thank you. Like, Maraglia. Yeah, the name is like, all right, go for it. Infinite confidence. Just there go for it. Um, in holiday news, yeah. we have National Pet Day. Oh, that's always awesome. National 8-Track Tape Day. We lost something when that faded and declined. National Submarine Day, National Education and Sharing Day, that should be every day, Holy Monday, and World Parkinson's Disease Day. And in Today in History, in 1814, Napoleon abdicates the throne on April 11th, after all of his military campaigns came to naught at that point. 1924, first live sporting event broadcast on radio. Wow! And the history was set. That should have been a holiday for us. That's a big deal. Ugandan dictator Idi Amin is overthrown. I remember that. In 1969, Apollo 13 launches to the moon. Yes, amazing. U.S. President Barack Obama, Mama, meets Cuban leader Raul Castro in Panama in 2015. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Bronze. The Apollo 13 launches to the moon. Man, moon launches give me this little thing in me. It makes my heart center grow. It's kind of like the Grinch, where it's like in Christmas, his heart center just kind of grew to it. I'm like that when I and read actually, stories that. actually, like that was in 1970. I'm just looking. 1970. Okay. Yeah. I mean, th this was a flight that didn't do all that well. It went up. They had all of these difficulties with trying to go to the moon. 
And I think they even made a movie about it, Apollo 13. From, oh, with hell Tom yeah. Hanks. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, Tom Hanks. I mean, when these guys had all of the struggle. Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, and um, Gary Sinise. Yep. Chicagoan. Mm-hmm. Very good movie. And look, you can see these guys, when they went to the moon, when Kennedy made that speech, we're going to the moon. And he, you know, is like one of the best and most iconic speeches in the history of speeches. He was like, why does... Oh, what is he? So why does Navy play Army or something like that? But he goes into this thing of like all of these events. Why do people climb mountains? And he was like, it's this is a challenge that we accept as a world and as a civilization. This will show the best of our capabilities. Man, that speech is amazing. I guess my point is when they did that, they had the level. They didn't even have technology to the level of our calculators today. Like it was very basic, very basic stuff. And they had no contention of how they were going to do it. Just this ape looking at the moon. We're going to the moon. You want the moon? I'll give you the moon. Within 10 years. He was able to pull that off. Uh-huh. Um, very little technology on board those ships, and yet they were able to make it to the moon. Which that's where I get so entrenched in the, did we really go to the moon conspiracy? Uh-oh. 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 <laughs> because you're like, we barely had calculators, but we were able to go to the moon. You know, and, the, and the, there is the conspiracies, though, where there really was a soundstage yeah. ready in case we didn't get there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, to I know. just make it look like we were there. Neil deGrasse Tyson has gotten into fights with Joe Rogan on this. And know, it's always funny. And it's 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 so funny. But like, I, I get so... Because again, I, I get really entrenched in conspiracies. Not yeah. that I believe all of them, but that one, it's it's so hard sometimes to think, did we really? But then you do have, It would be though, too hard to pull off. I think that would be way Dr. too hard Stephen to pull off. Stephen Greer and all of them saying, that, yeah, no, we for sure went. That's what Greer says, that we went. And from Greer's take, Greer takes another take. The time frame, if you remember, when we went to the, in space, there was a time, like, three minutes that was just dropped, where right. they dropped communications, and they were having these conversations behind the scenes. And, you know, Greer's thing is, when we went to the moon, we saw something. There were lights in the sky. There were other ships. Yes, and he makes yeah. the point that Armstrong was basically saying, look, they didn't want us there. That was Armstrong. That was Greer's take on that. And that the three minutes was basically them having communication saying, look, we're seeing something. There's something up here, et cetera. How do you want us to proceed, et cetera, et cetera. That's the other Conspiracy. I would crap my pants. <laughs> yeah, I, that would have been so amazing. Like, no, think about I would have been scared I mean, look, to hell. You are in a ship. In the same way, look, a lot of that stuff is just based on what we're familiar with, right? Like, if my my ex saw a warthog for the first time, it's just like, oh, it's so cute. Oh my god, it runs from it, right? The warthog is not doing anything to anybody. It's just trying to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, dogs, weird-looking animals. By the same token, we're perfectly okay with them. We're used to them. Um, you see something else in the same way that there are people in Texas. You can imagine that there may be people elsewhere. And in the same way, those people in Texas have things that they want, care about, like, et cetera. You can, I would assume, the same thing would be true for anything else that you're basically dealing with. Meaning, it doesn't just mean they're automatically hostile just because you're seeing something that you don't fully grasp. And so I get the fear angle of it. But for me, I think it would be more excitement than fear. It's just this notion that your ship is worse off. What is the intention of the other ships that you're basically engaging if you're indeed engaging something else? And, you know, can you even identify them? Are they just lights in the sky that are basically moving in a way that you think they're under intelligent control? And again, all of this is a conspiracy, right? We don't necessarily know if this is flat fact true. But fear, yes, will probably be the normal reaction that people would have. And I, I don't know. Like I say, excitement for me, I think, will be more so. All, all I do know is, is that Neil Armstrong and a lot of them had said, or, you know, like near the end of their lives of, you know, that yeah, that there was something. Yes. That they did see another light form, uh, or another life form, uh, Buzz Aldrin, who yep. many don't know. And actually, I'm wearing it today. Are you? Many don't know that most, if not all, of our astronauts come and hail from Purdue University. Do they? Because we have an aeronautical engineering um, a major where it's it's astronauts. I had a 
a friend of mine who went on to be an astronaut. He's an astronaut for NASA. That's so cool. Uh, but yeah, it's a, we have the Neil uh, Neil Armstrong Hall where it's him out in front. Like, oh, it's, that it's is super, so cool. It's super cool. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where I just remember always seeing on campus, um, especially like one of the fraternities, Fiji, mm-hmm. they had Buzz Aldrin. Or no, I mean, I'm sorry, Gene Cernan. Yeah. And Gene Cernan hails from Chicago. Um, and my mom actually grew up in the same neighborhood where he lived when he was going in and, you know, going up in space and what have you. And my mom has this big story that when he came back from space that um, he did, that they had this big parade for him. Yeah. And um, my grandma made homemade, she, this is the Italian grandma, homemade dandelion wine. Uh-huh. And she had a big sign that said, Gene Cernan, you really made our moonshine. Oh, that's like so that. cool. I love um, that. Yeah, I love so that's that. That's like one of the big stories my mom always like tells like, oh yeah, we knew Gene Cernan, we knew him and blah, 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 blah. That's so, so cool. Yeah. So I used, yeah. I used to have a picture of Buzz Aldrin on my wall. He's standing there with his entire helmet on, earth is behind him and he's holding the American flag. Another one who went to Purdue, many don't know, Amelia Earhart. No way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of Purdue, a lot of uh, pilots and stuff like that that In went out for went NASA. And again, um, Amelia Earhart, she went there too. That's amazing. West Lafayette, Indiana. Anna, baby. Go ahead. Well, Not really known for their journalism, but I did go there for their but Definitely for their aeronautics. That's amazing. I, I mean, look, Buzz Aldrin has been caught saying stuff that trends on this notion of we encountered something. And he's, don't get me wrong, he stepped back. But Buzz Aldrin, especially in the UFO community, had made a huge amount of headlines on saying stuff that trends along as like, wait a minute, Buzz, said it again? What did you say? Mm-hmm. Like where you take that second thought. Um, and many of these astronauts, they are... I don't want to say sworn to secrecy, but they kind of sworn to secrecy. I mean, like Edgar Mitchell, for example. Edgar Mitchell was heavy into the UFO stuff. So was um, one of the other astronauts. I can't think of the guy's name. Clinton's emails. If you look through it, Edgar Mitchell was in those emails talking about power sources and all this other exotic stuff. So these guys, many, some of them do have an interest in this that comes out. What's the guy? The who, Bill Baker? Burr? The one who's in charge of NASA right now. Even him, he came out for the UFO stuff, basically saying we need more research, more information into this. He was a senator, I believe senator or congressman at one point, and now he is head of NASA and he is open to kind of releasing the data. When I was um, a local news anchor in El Paso, this was back in like 2016, 2017, they have a huge Thanksgiving Day parade. Yeah. And we actually, um, at least the anchors for uh, the NBC channel down there, we were the MCs for it. Yeah. And the master, I guess it's master of ceremonies or whoever is like honored that year. It was the hometown hero, Ginger Carrick. For those that don't know, she's the first female Hispanic flight director for NASA, which is she's the one that's in the control room and she's like, you know, flight deck. Yeah. Like all systems go. She's the one count like hammering it out. And I asked her specifically when we had her on the interview before, you know, the whole um, uh, parade happened. I was like, okay, like settle a bit. Like, are there aliens? She's like, like, and she's like, well, she's like, there's been a lot of crazy things that I've seen. And that's all she could say. Oh, you didn't push? You didn't push? Well, I mean... Here's the thing is I knew she wasn't going to tell me they're under government secrecy. Oh, it's from that. NASA. That's but but that. she's like, but she said, she basically said it though. Like the you things have, that I've seen. You have a, you have an ability to be very intense when you're trying to get something accomplished. That should have been used in that moment. But like, what's but the truth? What's the truth? But at the same time, though, no, she's she's on the ground. Yeah. She's, you know, communicating to them up in space or whatever. I had more questions. I did ask about like the three minutes that were silent. Oh, what'd she say? You know, uh, well, she said that they they still don't know it to this day. Many of them are it's 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 that era yeah. in NASA where they have that secret. It's not passed down. Because I'm telling you, that's the that's the thought that those pilots saw something. 
And they did not yeah. want to communicate that over the loudspeaker to everybody else that was listening in on the communications, which was like, um, NASA, can you take us off for a minute? And she <laughs> she's like, it's not like you can go back and like listen to the tapes no. or something. She's like, that's all sworn off with that generation of NASA. It's not like a thing that's like passed down. Wow. Oh, yeah. I want to know. I want to know. Yeah. I'm so I'm so curious Maybe about it. We can see if we could get her as a as a guest one day. Yeah. But um, yeah, she was super super cool. But let's go to your fault. Um, you guys are listening to fault lines. I was going to say people in the chat they think that you're not going to talk about the um the defeat the mandates rally. Oh, are you mistaken, folks? <laughs> are you mistaken? <laughs> they're probably thinking because of me. Um, no, that's what, they, that's what they're saying. Different. You're not yeah. going to want to talk about it. Let's have the conversation. You guys are listening to <laughs> fault lines. Thomas Franzak. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are going to Farron's fault. Farron, what is your fault for this morning? Okay. So I have a couple things that I want to discuss first. Um, Let's see. Um, First things first is, do you think, a couple questions for you. Do you think Democrats understand what people want? And do you think Democrats understand that they're kind of messing things up? No, not no, I think they're going to use January 6th, and I think they're going to try to blame everything on Putin from the standpoint of the economic chaos. And they're, up to this point, I haven't seen them making any adjustments or changes in regards to policy stuff. I'm actually surprised that you said that because I think somebody agrees with you. Let's roll Pete Buttigieg on The Breakfast Club. <laughs> Take a listen. You, you do realize, Pete, um, a lot of black people feel like Democrats have kept no promises since they've been in, since they've been in office. Really? Yes. We, Reverend Allen said that a million times. I'm sure he'll be I mean, pressing you about okay. that tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I, look, I get it. No, you don't. Actually, you don't get it. One sliver of an ounce, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. And mind you, I know this guy from my time in South Bend. And and honestly, it makes me laugh because he's such a... Oh, His response is great. Yeah. Really? 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 People say that? <laughs> this from the guy that got 0% of the black vote, mind you. Right, right. And remember the SNL skit where they were like, like, why do you think you're not doing well with black people? And he's like, well, look at me. <laughs> like, <laughs> that literally is, yeah, it, it kind of, you know. Now, now here's my question for you. Would you consider a weapon of mass destruction something that can kill 4.7 million people? Okay. So when asked about heading down to the southern border to look at what's going on as far as the people coming over and the drugs coming over, here is what Peter Ducey asked Jen Psaki. Uh-oh. Doing God's work, Uh-oh, Pete. Peter Ducey. We got the other Pete. God's work. <laughs> um, we got Peter Ducey asking Jen Psaki if Biden plans to go to the border. Take a listen. On this, does the president have any plans to figure out what these small towns who are bracing for a major influx in migrants next month need by making his first ever trip to the border? I have nothing to predict for you in terms of additional trips. The president will be traveling the country, uh, but I don't have any more specifics for you at this point. Don't have anything specific. Okay. Over the weekend, less than 23 hours ago, in the town, in the border town of Air, in, in Arizona, you had two men that were arrested 
after police found on them enough fentanyl to kill 4.7 million people. Police officers in San Francisco are saying that they're overdosing from fentanyl exposure, just from being exposed to it, not even taking it. You have fentanyl triggering a spike in mass overdoses in the United States. This from El País, which is a a paper out of uh, Juarez, Mexico. You have people in Florida canvassing spring breakers, warning them of fentanyl that's coming in through cocaine and weed. So we have this weapon of mass destruction, correct? I would call it that. I mean, just because people take it don't mean they're going to die No, 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 no. I asked you. I said, do you consider something that kills 4.7 million people a weapon of mass destruction? Did it kill 4.7 million people? It has the ability to. Every, guns have the ability to. Meaning, no, 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 meaning no, 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 you no. can give, you can ask me a question that is. How much, how much, how many, how much, okay, so then we can't call a nuclear, a nuclear bomb then a weapon of mass a nuclear, destruction. A nuclear weapon's job is to kill. Yeah. It's job. What do you think fentanyl's job is? It's not to kill. They're using it for something else. But from the standpoint of a medical fentanyl, thing that people even, take. even less than a drop can kill matter. an elephant. Doesn't matter. I'm making the point that one has a propensity and a purpose to kill. The other one is not. It's just being misused. Fentanyl has a purpose to kill. What's, fentanyl is given to kill people? Do you see fentanyl used in a hospital? Do doctors give fentanyl to kill people? No, because it's going to kill you. That's what I'm asking you. Fentanyl is designed to kill. People don't take fentanyl. Right, because it kills you. No, no, no. You're missing what I'm asking. Fentanyl has no medical usage. Despite the fact that it has a name called fentanyl. Because it kills you. It has zero medical usage. That's what I'm getting at. Because it kills you. I'm asking you, does it have any medical usage? No, because it kills you. Nobody uses fentanyl for anything, despite the fact it has a medical name. It has a, med- no, it has a, it has a chemical name to right. it. It's not used medically whatsoever because it kills you. Okay. I don't know if that's true. No, that is First, true. I don't know that. I'll take it is for- true. I don't a know drop that. can kill an elephant. But there's a difference between fentanyl and people using it and may die accidentally. If you take, if you take any kind of fentanyl, Fern, you will die. You're telling me from you, there's no difference between a nuclear weapon and fentanyl. What I'm saying is. Just answer that. It's a yes or no. There, there is a difference in the, in the matter of an explosion right. versus an overdose, yes. Right. But if you have a drug that can ultimately kill 4.7 million people, I would consider that a weapon of mass destruction. Ultimately. Ultimately a weapon a of mass destruction. A nuclear weapon will kill 4.7 million people in its right. usage. Right. Fentanyl and it's designed probably would kill more, I believe. I know. There's yeah. a difference in those things. There's a dramatic difference in a weapon that is specifically used to kill a large number of people, destroy property and everything else versus people overdosing on a drug. Different things. Right. One, one destroys property and kills people. The other just kills people. And the other one has intent to kill people, whereas the other one is being overly used or improperly used. There's a no, difference. No, fentanyl isn't improperly used, Jamarl. Fentanyl will kill you. It's put into, it's put, it's going to kill you. It's not used medically. It's putting drugs, right? So people take and they cut it with certain drugs and everything else. Everybody who uses it dies. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. Everybody that uses fentanyl dies. Did you not see the reports of all of these? Even even exposure is killing police. Even exposure. That's how bad this drug is. Only point I'm making to you, there's a difference between, let's say, fentanyl right, versus again, a nuclear weapon. Right, again, because one is an explosion and one is just exposed to it. You can be exposed to a nuclear, like a part of a nuclear blast and still have effects. Like you can have kids with third heads being born, you know. <laughs> but again, I would consider it a weapon of mass destruction. It's being laced into drugs in order to kill people. So my point being, though, is we have all of these problems happening, coming through our southern border. They're getting ready to lift Title 42, that it's going to allow 
all of these people who supposedly have COVID into the country. Okay, why are we not talking about this? Why? Because we got to blame everything on Putin right now. I don't think Putin is having all these people come through our southern border with COVID. I don't think he sent out that memo. You have all of these drugs with fentanyl, laced with fentanyl coming up through the southern border, killing people. We have a problem, a major, major problem here. And then you have over the weekend, you have the um, uh, defeat the mask mandates rally. Personally, if we're going to be all about defeating the mandates, maybe we should consider not lifting Title 42. Because if we're going to be letting all these people come through with COVID, I mean, what the hell have we been doing for two years? Just to make a point right here. Thank you for the fact check. Fentanyl is a strong opioid painkiller. It's used to treat severe pain. For example, during and after an operation for serious injury or pain from cancer. No, fentanyl is no. That's morphine. No, I'm reading the definition of fentanyl. From where? This is www.nhs.uk slash medicines fentanyl. There's, okay, then this is now. Farron's far right rants. I'm actually not far right, <laughs> believe it or not. I just wanted to point out, there's a difference between a drug being misused and a nuclear weapon. That's all. That was my main and only point. And again, fentanyl is being used. My grandmother used to use it for pain when she had cancer. I'd have to see, because then, then there's, there's a 0.0001% in it or whatever, because the amount that's coming through with kids, I mean, either way, it's a weapon of mass destruction if it's being laced and it's about to kill 4.7 million people and stashes of drugs. I'm sorry. I, I consider it a weapon of mass. If it's going to kill 4.7 million people, one batch. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's the way I see it. Okay. Really? Oh, I'm going to slap the out of you. We got to get that Buttigieg clip. Really? Really? We got to cut that. Hang on, I'm going I'm to look at this, Uncle Jack. Hang on. NHS. Okay, first of all, this... NHS.UK. Yeah, national healthcare system. That's their national healthcare system. But look, your point, you know, make your point. Your, your point is still valid, I suppose, from, from your perspective. If they're not going to use it for pain, they couldn't use it to lace with all sorts of medications and drugs in order to give it a different high. Um, but, you know, I don't know if drug dealers want to kill their... Have you ever heard of the opioid crisis that happened in China? Yes. But I guess my thing is, do drug dealers really want to kill their clientele on purpose? Hell yeah. Oh, okay. Why not? Because they're clients. There's an economic relationship between the client and the drug user. But that's my, that's my take anyway. I do understand the point of it having dramatic consequences. Um, the opioid thing, look, I have, I have a difference of opinion on the opioid stuff. I mean, yes, it caused a crisis. Yes, it killed a lot of people. By the same token, there's a lot of people that need those meds that aren't getting those meds because of restrictions that they basically put into place. And so, yes. You keep it out of the hands of people who want to abuse it. By the same token, those measures keep it out of the hands of the people who also need it. And yeah, that's what's my, my point being, though, and everyone's like, oh, but Farron's dad's a doctor. Yeah, I'm not a doctor, dipwits, okay? I'm just saying, I think that this is, this is a very, very scary thing that's coming through our southern border. You have people that are dying from it because people are lacing with it, okay, whatever have you, but they're lacing it clearly with an amount, a legal amount that can kill you or a, a, an illegal amount that will kill you. And then you have all of these defeat the mandates. And I understand where these people are on the defeat the mandates. But what's the point if we're letting all these people come through the southern border? They're going to have COVID. They're bringing in drugs. You know, as Trump says, they're bringing in drugs. They're bringing in all this stuff. But it's like my point being is, is that besides fentanyl, besides COVID, 
Why are we not looking at our southern border? You have, for example, the president of Hungary, Viktor Orban. They have a fence that is literally just barbed wire and guys are just kind of walking along patrolling the southern border or patrolling the border all around Hungary. They have zero problems. And people voted him completely, 100%, like, we want him. And I feel like with our country, you had Kamala that went there at the very, very beginning of the Biden administration. Then you have this whole thing of, well, we don't have anything coming up with a Biden administration or a Biden going down to the southern border when we have a major, major problem. Now you're going to have it where you had Governor Greg Abbott. It's like, oh, we're going to send all of them up to D.C. You deal with them. And well, I think that's hilarious. It scares the crap out of me at the same time. But again, but this is my whole thing is, is, is it's not, like I said, we kind of went into a fentanyl rant. However, you do, again, you have these, these drugs coming through the border because they're not coming in like anywhere else. Uh, coming through the border they want to lift Title 42, which is going to let all these people in with COVID, where we just were trying to figure out how to stop it. I mean, it's just, it's a cluster down there. And nothing is being done. We're still sending all these, these weapons over to Ukraine. We're still sending all this money over to Europe. And look at our, the state of our country. What the hell are we doing to fix any of these problems, especially at our southern border? I lived at the southern border. I lived in those border towns. And the amount of people going back and forth every single day for work and what have you, it's, it's a very strict process ever since 9-11, for those at least who lived in El Paso told me, since 9-11, stuff started getting more strict. But now all of a sudden it's going to be this free-for-all. And I don't understand. I don't understand this at all. Because, you know, Kamala Harris was like, um, I don't need to go to the border. I've never been to Europe and, you know, that type of stuff. And then Fox is talking about like hundred percent, like hundreds of percent increase in the number of people that are coming across the border. If mm-hmm. Biden is going to get rid of 42, which allowed him to basically eliminate those people immediately, right. what's going to happen? And if you remember when the administration first started, there was a border crisis. They had all of those people in those homes and everything else, not those homes, cages, children's uh, being separated on some level. Yeah, it was a mess. And so it seems like we're going back to that. Yeah. And, and again, just with... Uh, you're a yank now, fair. I live in Houston. Houston is not a border town, blank state. <laughs> you don't live on the border. Um, fair, and if you keep repeating your same talking points, it doesn't make you righteous. I'm not trying to be righteous. I'm just asking questions. I don't think it's why righteous. You're just asking we, the border. Just why aren't we looking at the southern border? Yeah. That's my only question. Why aren't we looking there? Do you think, what do you think they could do? And we have to go to birth, but what do you think they could do for the border towns? Because that's where, to your point, a lot of gangs a lot of um, drugs and stuff like that flow across the border, legal and illegal. So what could they do? I mean, are you thinking of a military presence at the border? Are you thinking beefing up the guards at the border? Like, what's the, the thing to deal with that as opposed to the way Biden is? Dealt with I mean, I don't necessarily have a, a solution. A way out. Yeah. A way out. But I think it's just, why aren't we looking at it? Why aren't we looking at, at the southern border? Why is it just the right wing? Yeah. Our conversation. It yeah. should be something and that's the that thing is, is the fact that I'm even asking this, it makes me, oh, fair and so right wing. I'm not. I hate, I can't stand the fact that I have to watch Fox News and see this all the time. And by the way, the American public agrees with you on this. Mm-hmm. Meaning like when they were looking at Trump, Trump's highest marks was border. That right. wasn't, you know, entirely a right wing thing. You got many of independents who say, yeah, we should do something with the border, period. Now, now, mind you, living at the border... This, I will say with the Fox News where you see all these people cutting across illegally and <laughs> right. stuff like that, <laughs> right. that 
is very few and far between, folks, okay? And that's where I can say, having lived there, I didn't see people fleeing across and, like, how they show, you know, oh, look at we just saw a bunch of them just run and nothing's done. <laughs> right. Super I- Fox News, okay? And that does not happen. I almost think that sometimes I'm like, I think those are, like, actors that they hired. Yeah. Like, can you just run across really quick and, like, we'll pretend to, like, see you, but, like, don't look at us? You know, it's just, <laughs> it's bizarro. Um but it's one of those things, um, blank state. Farron, would you support a final solution? Get Blank state, get out of here. That's, that's, that's weird. That's so hyperbolic. Yeah. And look, that's kind of the problem with these conversations. And I always hate these conversations because right. of that. Somebody brings up a point that is legit. And because it's often cast in these right-left terms, she's not coming at this from right-left terms. Yeah, she's no. just saying, hey, should we be paying attention to the border? Yeah. That shouldn't get immediately cast as, oh, she's a right-winger because she what? cares about the number of immigrants who are streaming into the country? Yeah, she should care. You should care. Or, I mean, I don't I don't even mind the number of immigrants streaming into the country because a lot then the right wing will say, "Oh, it's because they want to get them come in and they're illegal and they're going to get their votes." Most immigrants actually vote Republican. So, it actually would be to the Republicans' yeah. benefit, and I know this again having covered it in the southern border. But again, my question is is if all this COVID's going to be let in, all this fentanyl is going to be let in through these drugs, which they're already talking about the overdose death rates of fentanyl by kids just smoking weed on spring break and dying. I mean, why are we not looking at this? And the point is, is that I don't think that this administration will be able to fix it. So they keep focusing on Europe, which is they're making that problem over there worse. My whole point and my wrap up in all of this is we make problems really, really bad. <laughs> like we, we have people in our administration who don't know what they're doing. They have zero idea how to fix anything. So instead of trying to fix our own problems here, which again, they have no solution for, let's just go make it worse for somebody else. And a la Ukraine, Russia, Europe, all of, all of it. So again, I just think looking at our own country, trying to figure it out here, because again, why are we trying to screw up Europe even more? <laughs> what, why, why can't we fix our own country? That's my own question. And the point is, is that I don't even think, back to Pete Buttigieg, I don't think they even realize what to, really? Is this <laughs> yeah, Pete. Pete and the rest of the little, the, the little the Biden gang. There's big problems here and nobody's paying attention. My overall arching point. They literally think that nothing's wrong. We got to get that clip. <laughs> That's so good. I love that. Hey, Pete, you have a problem getting voted. Really? Really? I didn't Pete, know that was a problem. Really black people like you. Yeah. Really? really? Oh, you guys are listening to Paul <laughs> Thomas and Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys find yourself in the D.C. area, you can reach us online or on um, the radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I or putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content in, give us a like or share that audio or video, or for that matter, a rumble. Definitely got to update the script, and thank you for doing it. Um, if you guys want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. On Friday, we had a phenomenal meeting and conversation with the one and only Daniel or David Burke. Daniel Burke. Um, he is becoming a favorite person of mine um, joining us on the show. Gives us amazing financial advice with this kind of world context, especially now. 
considering this kind of economic war of attrition that has basically taken place between Russia and the United States and NATO. And what I suspect eventually is going to include China, especially over an issue of Taiwan. But to have a conversation, we're joined with Daniel Burke. He is a representative for the Schiller Institute and a former candidate for the U.S. Senate in New Jersey. Daniel, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me back on. No, absolutely. At the moment that you told me you guys were having a meeting with um, the gentleman from Russia on the kind of financial and economic architecture of Europe, had to have you back. We wanted, we definitely wanted to get your response in regards to what basically took place in the meeting. So first, could you explain what the meeting was and two, what the results of that meeting? So we had um, thousands of people from five continents tune in live to a conference of the Schiller Institute on our website, schillerinstitute.com, where people can watch that today. There were four panels, and uh, the first panel included a keynote from Helga Zeplarouche and uh, another address from Anatoly Antonov, the ambassador of Russia to the United States. Uh, we had people from many continents. We had on the same panel representatives from South Africa, from India, uh, high-level people, former cabinet ministers, for example, Jay Naidu, former cabinet minister in the Nelson Mandela government, and uh, Sam Petroda, former cabinet minister in uh, Indian governments. And <clears throat> the t- I'm going to read one short quote to try to encapsulate the purpose of this conference. This is from Helga's opening remarks. The aim of our conference is to arouse the awareness of ever larger social forces around the world that because of the danger of the presently escalating strategic confrontation, there could soon be a full military engagement between NATO and Russia leading to a world war, which in all likelihood would mean the annihilation of mankind in a following nuclear winter. The aim of our conference is therefore to demonstrate in the most powerful way that there exists an immediately accessible alternative, a new paradigm, which can leave that mortal threat behind us and begin a new era of human history in cohesion with the true nature of mankind as the only species known so far capable of reason. We had uh, simultaneous translation into four languages and uh, just a very successful discussion um, on this topic. Wow. That's an amazing statement. It's true, right? I mean, it puts you in the mind of the Atomic Agency, uh, 12 minutes or one minute to midnight and those type of um, arguments. What did you guys come to from the standpoint of a perspective architecture for it all in order to prevent that world conflict? Because I think it seems that the world is separating. That's what it seems like it's taking place. If there's a provocation, for example, with China, I mean, I'm sorry, with Taiwan, well, something similar may actually take place from the standpoint of the world in the way that the Ukraine is dealing with Russia and the way that the world may deal with China basically led by the U.S., or at the very least, let's say, Europe and NATO countries. So what was the architecture, the security <laughs> architecture and economic architecture you guys came up with as a framework to try to basically quell some of this kind of economic conflict that's taken back and forth between these various actors? Thank you. Well, I mean, um, we, the, we've actually, the Schiller Institute has published a, an outline for such a, what are steps to need to be taken to create such a new international economic order? Uh, And that was one of the major topics of the second panel of the conference, uh, which included the former chief economist of the World Bank, uh, Justin Yifu Lin, very, very leading, prominent Chinese economist, who was very supportive of the particular outlook that we're trying to promote. Namely, uh, right now uh, in, in the world, you have a disastrous situation. I talked on Friday about uh, the warnings coming from the Chongyang Institute of Finance at Renmin University that 
the effect of this sort of trigger of world um, economic breakdown uh, caused by the sanctions, I would say the sanctions have been a trigger of this, that we could be seeing uh, famine spread to a billion people, to one-eighth of the entire human species. Uh, and there are already major hunger protests in many countries across the world, uh, not to mention, of course, the inflation, even hyperinflation in many, uh, in many areas of the world economy. So what are we going to do about this? Well, our proposal right now is that you start with the strategic triangle of Russia, India, and China. They represent in total about 38% of the world's population. They produce 43% of the world's wheat, 23% of its natural gas, 66% of its steel, a world-class nuclear energy, rail uh, capability, infrastructure capability, space science, and so forth. And we're saying they have to sort of come together and form a, uh, an, a, um, a kind of an, uh, a paradigm in which, which may be a system that is parallel to the IMF-dominated system, which is collapsing right now. They're going to be having to, they're going to have to make certain agreements about uh, fixed exchange rates between their currencies and initiate uh, increases in physical economic investment in the the rest of the world that we're going to have to rely on those three nations to come forward now and begin to spread the belt and road initiative policy in every continent and that that type of initiative is something that the united states can join uh, that we have to figure out also how to bring the united states to join into that much of this is already happening i just want to read you one quote that came from the the head of the um uh, of the Bundestag SPD group. Uh, his name is Mutsenich. He, he, this guy was warning about this. He, he, was, he considers this to be a threat. It is not. He says, there is not only a new world emerging, but there is also a new economic order emerging that will fundamentally challenge our self-image, but also the conditions of our economic activity. So there's a representative of the Western establishment, so to speak, acknowledging the fact that this new world order is coming in with the Russia-China-India capability being the, the sort of the basis for it. Um, and our view is that that has got to be uh, the spark for this new economic system based on economic development and addressing the problems of the famine and the pandemic. You know, you also had the Russian ambassador to the United States, um, Anatoly Antonov, there um, in the conference. And I kind of wanted to get um, what his take was on all of this and kind of some memorable things that he said. Thankfully, you can also read some of his remarks in Sputnik, uh, which has covered some of his uh, crucial remarks. Um, But his focus in his comments was on describing the various efforts at having a security architecture in the history of the past hundred years or so, and the complete uh, um, insufficient character of the rules-based order of the past uh, 30 years. Uh, And then he made some very clear remarks about the need to end the spreading of fake news that discredits the great mission of the Russian military, I'm quoting directly, A blatant example is the slander against us regarding the situation in Bukha. Staged scenes that distort the truth must be unacceptable. Uh, He went on in in some depth on various uh, of these cases, including the need to, from from the standpoint of the Russian Federation, to achieve the uh, demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and so forth. But crucial to his remarks was that 
In December, the Russian proposals, the two draft treaties with the United States and NATO that were published publicly, um, he said, you know, these were a peaceful initiative offering the vision of our vision of security architecture. He went through some of the fundamental demands in that. He said, but politicians who try to reduce the whole issue to the crisis in Ukraine are ignoring its origins and driving the discussions to a dead end. And so he he really stressed the need to preserve existing uh, relationships between the United States and Russia, like the New START Treaty in particular, and the the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, and uh, he focused on the hope that there is a possibility to um, create conditions for de-escalation in Europe. Uh, and in particular, he stressed in one of his remarks, um, um, quote, I would like to confirm an importance for your NGO to be involved in this process. I'm sure that without your assistance, it will be very difficult to find a compromise which fits everybody. So I think he's thinking, he's engaging, in, in, if you watch the conference, he's engaging with the fundamental concept that Helga LaRouche and the Schiller Institute are trying to put out, which is that if you want to deal with a crisis today, which has such um, dangerous characteristics, then you have to put forward a solution uh, that provides for the interests of every nation, which is a fundamental requirement in the draft treaties from Russia to the United States. They're saying that your security needs cannot infringe on ours. We have to figure out some way to address all of them. Our view is the only way to do that is to move immediately towards mass economic development, physical economic development in the world. And uh, the ambassador was very much responsive to that idea. I'm curious, what do you think would have to take place for the United States to take up that, or the very least even negotiate on that level? I mean, it seems like this is trying to be decided militarily in regards to what Europe is going to look like going forward. So what, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think there's a potential or chance for any level of negotiation to take place where the U.S. would agree to this kind of new economic architecture of the world? Um, so, you know, I thought about that in our conversation last Friday because um, I really meant what I said. It's, it seems quite terrifying um, to look at the quality of American leadership. It's just so abysmal. Um, however, the United States does not exist in a vacuum, you know, and, and the world is markedly changing. Uh, if you look at just like the results from this more from um, uh, this this vote to kick uh, Russia off of the UN Human Rights Council, it actually turns out if you look at it that um, more more nations either abstained, voted against it, or simply didn't show up for the vote than people who, than nations who voted for it. It was something like a hundred and something to ninety ninety three. Uh, so the world is changing significantly, and the United States is not somehow you know, removed from that process. And increasingly, we're going to see people in the United States feeling, we're going to see the, the population of the United States, which is terribly angry with the Biden administration, more and more feeling the impact of this change that's happening in the world for the worse, you know, the effect of the policies that we've been pushing. So <clears throat> I think that although we can say that the potential uh, is not visible in the present situation, it is possible for that to change, and we should be trying to create new potential, which was effectively the the the, the efforts of the conference. I think that this kind of thing will necessarily spread because um, if people don't, I mean, a billion people are in danger. One eighth of the human population are in danger of falling into famine in a very very short amount of time. 
Uh, the, it's the effect of the of the collapse in the production of fertilizers, artificial fertilizers, for example, which has to do with the war. Uh, you know, there's there's just a disastrous situation here. Um, but those who will respond to the reality of the physical economic you know, dimensions of the crisis, they will be forced to go down this road of cooperation with Russia, India, and China. And, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, I was just talking before in, in my monologue that, you know, the United States, there's all these problems going on. And you even had, you know, like Pete Buttigieg, where they asked, like, hey, do you see a problem? Like, do you see that people don't trust you? And he's like, really? Um, you know, it's a soundbite of the century, honestly. Um, and you have these people where they have zero idea of how people feel, how, you know, the fact that we could undergo a famine, um, as you just laid out, you know, and I feel like right now the United States, truthfully, is probably the only country that's not understanding this because it's kind of a pride thing. I think that, you know, we're kind of starting to realize that not that the empire is crumbling, but we're not, we're no longer that number one top spot. There are people that are edging towards that number one spot. Some would even argue that we're not in the top spot anymore, um, which I wouldn't disagree with them. But as far as the conference, is there any hope <laughs> that the United States, you think, and some of these leaders or some of these folks that are talking or that we're talking over the weekend have some sort of a positive outlook and that some of these leaders, particularly here in the United States, can maybe open their mind a little bit as far as having to compromise once and for all? I think the only thing that's truthful is optimism because it is, I mean, what Helga's talking about in, in emphasizing the idea of the sacredness of every life, that there's no difference in the value of life, whether it's European, African, Chinese, United, American, whatever, that all lives are equally sacred. This is, I mean, this is really the basis of the creation of this nation, of the, you know, the, uh, and what comes before it, of the great renaissance in Europe in the 1400s. It's the basis of the uh, development, the flowering of modern science, of the most beautiful culture and, uh, that, that mankind has ever known. That's how all of these things came into existence. So for us to say it can happen today is a very justified view. And it's also, um, when you look at the conditions and say, you're not, we're not going to get some kind of a tweak. We're not going to get some sort of a minor shift. There's not going to be some kind of an opening that suddenly there's just a little bit of a move in the right direction. And then, and then in, you know, uh, gradual uh, reform of the system or something like that. You need a new system. You need a completely new system. The, the, the leaders of the United States, Russia, China, India are going to have to sit down at the table and say, look, the last system collapsed or this system is breaking down. I think that it, when you see a financial blowout like we had in 2007, 2008, but a lot worse coming around, which is really what's on the table right now, then you have the potential for people to respond to reality. Um, so I'm optimistic. The conference was centered on an optimism. I think that the response of the Russian government to participate in this way and to, to emphasize the role of our institute was very happy and exciting. And we're in it for the long haul. Our view, you know, is that it might take a year. Uh, it might take um, months and months for there to be significant motion from governments in this direction. But it's already started. 
And so as that develops across the world and from many nations across the world, then it creates a greater and greater demand on people in the United States to join it. And it makes it, I think, more and more possible. In a certain sense, as long as that positive process and that new paradigm represented by the BRI continues to grow, which it is, even in the midst of the war and the economic crisis, then as things get worse in the West, it becomes greater and greater uh, a possibility for us to join them and to, and to establish this new system. I'm glad you said that. I'm very glad you said that because I, I am more, I think I'm more cynical on this. And even though ultimately hopeful, if that makes sense. Um, this country was started off with a genocide followed up by slavery um, in order to kind of get the level of economic bang for the buck that it had in the world during a time frame. And even though certain things came out of that, meaning to the country that we basically have at our disposal now, I think it's helpful to kind of keep in mind how this stuff started and how one side was able to advantage on another. The reason I say that is there's no God that is going to kind of allow those things to kind of work out to the positive under normal circumstances. Usually it's the incentives that are built into a process that incentivize and push people um, to go to basically use the advantages they have at their disposal. The reason I'm saying that is because in the current situation, if the U.S. believes it has some kind of military or economic um, let's say, advantage, then it may not necessarily want to dispense with those things until those things are no longer an advantage. And you can even make an argument that this ripping apart of the world order in some response is a response to basically trying to or not being able to have control of globalism in a way that the West may have wanted to have control of globalism. Is it a situation where you believe that things would have to degrade significantly for the country to get to the point of saying, okay, fair enough, we'll negotiate, we'll come up with a new architecture? And that is the only reason. Meaning, for example, John Bowden. John Bowden didn't like the United States getting in the weapons treaties. In his head, we have the highest level of technology. Any treaty would be a limit on our capability to dominate the rest of the world. We have an advantage. There's no point in giving it up. I think the same thing is true in regards to the way leaders deal with economic and political situations, this being both. What's your take? Jamal, I really thank you for that. I, I mean, I, it, it is the fact that the strategic geometry is changing and will change. And that's an effect of the ideas, the assumptions about the nature of humanity, about the nature of the universe that guide policy outlook. Uh, and right now, you know, we're just so thoroughly dominated by the city of London, Wall Street, monetarist empire that focuses on Malthusian goals of reducing population and and of destroying development. Uh, I mean, it's just been so sick and disgusting for the past 60 years, even more than that, but certainly since the assassination of John Kennedy. And so we have, it's really hard to imagine the United States regaining any goodness. However. Um, you know, so I, and I think, you know, people will respond to the change that is happening, the effect of those, of that policy orientation. They're going to have States. to. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to have to. We're going to have to cut in. Thank you, my man. I really appreciate <laughs> you joining Daniel. us. I'm The Voice. You guys were listening to Daniel Burke. He's a representative for the Schiller Institute and former candidate for the United States Senate in New Jersey. And of course, this is Faultlines. Thomas Bronzak, back for the last hour. Faultlines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. My trolls call me Moscow Mary or Fox News Farron. <laughs> but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable 
your last man on the wall, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. I was just telling Jamaral, yes, I can admit it. I was wrong on one thing. I apologize. Fentanyl is prescribed. However, it's like a 0.00001% and they're on patches and it's for people that no longer feel the effects from morphine. Since opioids are, you know, you need more and more as you get older, as you, you know, for example, cancer patients, they say, um, for pain. However, looking at a lot of this, it was showing that um, 42% of these like pills, like for kids, like they get like MDMA. Yeah. 42% of them that are tested Made with fentanyl. are with a legal dose of fentanyl. Yeah, basically lace. Yeah. And so it's it's just this powder that's used. And yeah, so that was my 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 whole spiel. So that one more time. You said I was right. Yeah, you were right as far as it being prescribed. But again, it was the 0.0001 because honestly. Producers, let's make a clip of that. <laughs> 13 seconds. I'm teasing, oh, I'm teasing. Blackjack, do I have a uh, overall, news for you ready? Your no, overall no. point. <laughs> Just to be clear, just to back you up, your overall point was correct. That basically this stuff is coming to the border and we need to pay attention to it. And again, with the with the whole weapon of mass destruction, I'm not comparing it to like a nuclear bomb. But what I'm saying is, is it can have the effects of killing just as many people. A lot people. of people. Yeah, depending yeah. on how it's used. Which many would say that that's a weapon of mass destruction. However, it's not a bomb. But again, I just, I've gotten, I've gotten roasted in the chat today. And I'm not going to lie. It kind of feels good. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's like... They've hit me and I kind of like it. Because you know what? When everybody's against you and you're the only one standing there, maybe you're doing something right. Sometimes. That's what I'm going to tell myself. Sometimes. In this case, that's not so much. Some, that's what but, some people say. Yeah. In this case. You ever say that though? Where they're like, if everyone's against me, maybe it's because I'm saying something that they don't like. Well, it's usually like self-serving. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's correct. Well, Farron, thank you so much for admitting you were wrong. So few people do. It yep. makes you a really good person. Yep. <laughs> I know. I appreciate that. And it makes me a good person because I do it and Jamarl never does. Oh, you know that's not true. You know that's not Whatever. You just got to find cases where I am wrong, and it is very rare. That's the only difference. But my point, though, is is really, like, literally what Daniel just said. Yeah. Is that why are we looking at our own problems and figuring out we have to work with the rest of the world. Yes. But maybe we should fix our problems here at home first before we go around telling everybody else what they need to do. Thousand percent agree. You know, you even had, for example... And it was so funny when China, you remember when they were, when we were accusing China and we were saying, oh, you're, you're committing genocide yes, and all this stuff. Yes, with the Uyghurs. It's and always China turned now. around and was like, um, what about your problem with like police brutality and yes. like your all white of those supremacy? people in the camps from yeah. um, the immigration stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and here the United States was like, whoa, how, how dare, dare you? you? Right. How dare you, sir? Who, who do you think you are? <laughs> right. And it's like, yeah. China might be wrong in your eyes, but the point is, is there's a lot of problems. They could say, how about the fentanyl deaths? How about this? How about the prison how? population? 5% the prison of the world population. population. 25% yes. of the world in our jails. That's yeah. an astonishing number. And mind you, not public jails, no. privatized yeah. prisons, yeah. mind you. Meaning they have a economic um, incentive basically keep those people there and push against legislation that might let those people Yeah, free out. labor. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. slavery's I mean, still going on, This folks. was Kamala Harris stuff, right? Tom Tulsi Gabbard went up. It was like, these people were supposed to be let out of the jail. You kept them in because it was cheaper to pay those guys 10 cent um, a day for labor or 10 cent an hour as opposed to actually having to pay somebody a full job, um, full-time job to do it. No, that's a big deal. There's another story that I want to point out, and we can get to the headlines, but this story, if it is true, it would be disastrous. And up to this point, Russia, Russia has called these people mercenaries. The mirror comes out, this crack team of SAS veterans joining Ukraine's bloody fight against the Russian invasion. There's another article 
comes out from this gentleman. He's a reporter for, I think it's called Le Figuero. And he says, Boris Johnson's visit to Kiev confirms London's place as Ukraine's first ally. Elite SAS Special Forces units have been present in Ukraine since the beginning of the war and have American Deltas confides a French intelligence source. Now, Russia has basically said these people are mercenaries. Now, you've had all of these attempts to get various people from the Azov Steelworks and multiple helicopters. They've been losing, I think, like five helicopters trying to get people out in addition to this kind of boat that apparently went there and that failed miserably to get the people out. And so people have been asking, why are these people so important that you're willing to waste this much material to get those people out? Whereas you're letting them basically get encircled in Marpol and in the East. That's a, you know, and so we've had Tarifa say, hey, are those um, troops? Well, like I said, Russia's called it the mercenaries. I'm going to stay with the mercenary label because con- contemplating this idea that the U.S. and um, U.K. is just can't go there. The ramifications are too extreme. Um, but this is what's coming out of France. Yeah. And then I don't know if you saw the one video over the weekend of um, President Zelensky <laughs> meeting the Azov Battalion and them basically being like, shut up, you will follow us. And he's like, but I'm the president. I'm 42. And they're like, mm, no, actually not. Which makes you really fear of who the hell is in charge over there. Very good question. Because it really ain't him. Very good question. And for those that think that he is, sadly mistaken. Like I always say, and here's and here's where you want to call me Fox News Farron. When I wake up, <laughs> I, I have it turned on right away and I already wake up wanting to regurgitate everything that I ate the day before because even this morning, Ainsley Earhart is like, we just need to give them all the weapons in the, we need to give them all the weapons so we, they can win this war. And I'm like, you're not going to win this war. Remove heads from sphincter. Realize they are not going to win this. No, but, even the weapons that they've been losing, the tanks, the... I mean, why do they think that I'm he's been screaming? I'm not surprised she's dating Sean Hannity, who him and Tucker ate each other. Do they? Oh, they have oh, a feud going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Scotty Nell, who she could tell you all that inside info. But yeah, I mean, Tucker, because he's got 26 million people yeah. watching him a night. He has more Democrats now watching him than... Republicans, believe it or not. Look, I am not. But a then you get Hannity on where he's like, oh, 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 same talking point, same talking point, and then all about Ukraine. Yeah. And even said last week, we need to keep giving more weapons and and and, and uh, ammunition and money to the Azov Battalion who's on the front lines. And, and I was like, well, Azov Battalion triggered. has been smashed at the Azov Steelworks in this kind yeah. of final stand. Not according I mean, but to them. What, but what do they think? It's going to take place. Do they honestly believe that we're going to give enough weapons where Ukraine is going to win this war? Look, you can look at the equipment and armaments. They're being smashed. I mean, the requests that Zelensky is putting out, this kind of hair on fire. We need help. We need weapons. We need this. We need that. I mean, even the systems that these guys are providing them now, they're running out of weapons from the standpoint of NATO. NATO is like, how are we going to replenish our stocks? It's like, so, look, it's, it's like at a certain point, you have to come to this kind of conclusion of, do you believe Ukraine is going to win it? And if you don't, that just means that you're given weapons just to extend and prolong a conflict. And the Washington Post said the quiet part out loud. Some NATO countries, the dirty secret is would want to fight to the last dead Ukrainian in order to get yeah. Russia involved into this conflict. Yeah. And so, Or you even had Senator Joe Kennedy where he's like, we need to do all we can. We need to win this war. Who is we? I'm sorry. Who? yeah. Who? Who's we? <laughs> really? <laughs> we, we did that just on people. Who right. Really? 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 <laughs> yeah. So... Boy, they, here we go. Well, in your COVID news in China, the Guangzhou closed itself to most arrivals Monday as China battles a major COVID-19 surge in its big eastern cities. Shanghai has seen the biggest rise with more than 26,000 cases announced Monday, only 914, though, of which showed symptoms, which maybe it shows more herd immunity. Who knows? 
The city of 26 million is under tight lockdown, which many residents confined to their homes for up to three weeks. And concerns are growing over the effect on the economy of China's largest city. International news, President Joe Biden will speak with Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi today as Biden presses world leaders to take a hard line against Russia's Ukraine invasion. India going neutral on the war has Washington concerned, while Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov praised India last month for abstaining from a UN vote to suspend Russia from its seat on the Human Rights Council over, quote, war crime allegations. Last month, India also bought 3 million barrels of crude from crude oil from Russia to secure its needs. The White House says the meeting between Biden and Modi will be virtual. The last time the two spoke was early March. Despite the recent visit to the country from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says President Biden has no plans to visit Ukraine. Also, when asked about Biden visiting the southern U.S.-Mexico border, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said there were no trips planned at this time. In your international news, tensions are flaring up in France amid the presidential race with people taking to the streets and holding demonstrations in support of their candidates or protesting against their rivals. The first round of presidential elections in France was Sunday with the second set for April 24th because no candidate gained a simple majority. As 97% of the vote has been counted, President Emmanuel Macron got just above 27%. Marie Le Pen closely behind with just over 23%. I'm making my prediction now. I think she's going to win. I think she's going to win. She might. I think she's going to win. Might. I mean, at this point, she's getting closer. Au revoir, President Macron. <laughs> Macron. Macron. And your croissant. As of, it's just fun to have that French, and I can't speak a lick of French, but it's just fun. It just sounds funny. Yeah. As of Monday, Russia says it destroyed air defense systems in Ukraine over the weekend in a renewed push to gain air superiority and take out weapons Kiev has described as crucial ahead of a brand new offensive in the east. The Russian Defense Ministry spokesman says the military used crude missiles to, excuse me, cruise missiles to destroy four S-300 air defense missile launchers on the southern outskirts of the central city of Dnipro. He said about 25 Ukrainian troops were also hit by a Sunday strike. Egypt, who gets all of its grain from Ukraine, reports that its annual inflation rate surged past 12% in March up 10% from February, largely because of the war in Ukraine, which has strained global markets and sent oil prices to record highs. The Central Agency for Mobilization and Statistics data shows price hikes across many sectors, from fuel, electricity, and food items to housing, medical services, and entertainment. The Palestinian Health Ministry reports that Israeli forces shot and killed a fourth Palestinian near the city of Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank, This is the latest in a growing wave of violence that has erupted during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. The Israeli military reports it opened fire at a man throwing a firebomb at an Israeli vehicle driving on a West Bank highway late Sunday. Again, that's according to the Israeli military. This is the fourth killing in the past 24 hours, among them an unarmed woman who was shot and killed at a military checkpoint near Bethlehem. The richest man on the planet, Elon Musk, will not be on the board of directors of his favorite social network, Twitter. Twitter CEO Paraj Agrawal said in a statement, although the board and the top management were excited to negotiate the risks and the process with Musk, the same morning, Musk allegedly said that he will no longer be joining the board. Your holidays today, National Pet Day, National 8-Track Tape Day, National Submarine Day. 
National Education and Sharing Day, also Holy Monday, and World, Par- uh, World Parkinson's Disease Day. Today in history, in 1814, Napoleon abdicated the throne. In 1970, Apollo 13 launched to the moon, but never made it. And in 2015, U.S. President Barack Obama met with Cuban leader Raul Castro in Panama. Those are your headlines for Monday, April 11th, 2022. Interesting. Interesting to say the least. Yeah, I've been looking at some of these reports that are basically coming out. Um, There was one from New York Post. Hunter Biden frequently covered family expenses. Text messages reveal. So, you know, the New York Post has been digging into this. Remember I told you about, hey, I'm going to have, don't worry, I won't be like dad and make you pay me back. I'll I'll just read it right here. Looking directly at it. He says, I hope you all can do, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. Hunter Biden Right to daughter Naomi in 2019, referred to his father, is really hard, but don't worry. And like, Pop, I won't make you give me half of your salary. For all of those that said I was fake news on fentanyl, I give you. I've been saying this <laughs> Nailed it. for weeks. Yeah. And so that's problematic, right? I mean, and what? Na- Naomi is the granddaughter, by the way. Oh, it's, right. it's uh, Naomi is actually his daughter. So when you think about daughter. it, China money, Ukraine money, and you think to yourself, Okay, so wait, the money that you were getting for this stuff? I mean, Biden was getting some of it, too, in regards to expenses that were paid? Because where else was the money coming from? I mean, these are certain questions that need to be asked, right? Does the president have a relationship with China in a way that undermines his capability to do his job? And for that matter, even with um, Ukraine stuff, the, in, in, the, in, the relationship that Joe Biden had with, China, uh, with Ukraine as being the viceroy while his son is working at that massively corrupt energy company, that's a big deal. And especially when he said, oh, I knew nothing about what my son was doing. I didn't have a conversation with him about it. We didn't talk about it. We didn't do anything about it. I just saw him and we just ate, you know, applesauce. How about the fact that he went over to China, he does a business dealing, and right after the dinner, a freaking diamond shows up in his his hotel room from this Chinese businessman Uh as like a thank you. And you wouldn't think like you come home and you're like, hey. Where'd you get the rock? <laughs> you know, right, like, right. and I ain't talking about the crack rock. I'm talking about the, the diamond. You know, I mean, it's just. It's like, Dad, we say we never talk about that. Not the crack. The yeah. diamond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You know, man, it's just it's that's well. And then you have um, Joe Biden's sister, Valerie, who was always kind of his campaign chairwoman. Mm-hmm. Um, her coming out saying, you know, and this is what they all do. They all say this, but it's, she's like, this is just, remember Clinton said this about Bill Clinton. This is just a right-wing conspiracy Whatever. trying to take down Joe and Hunter. And Hunter's just a good little boy who had problems that he's overcome. You know what? Hunter's a grown man, for one. He's in yeah. his 40s. That's first yeah. point. Um, second point, his dad is president and they have been using the Biden name for decades to enrich themselves off of that. Do you honestly think that Hunter Biden, random crackhead, Gets a job working in Ukraine, making what eighty thousand dollars a month. I love the uh, way you say crackhead. Well, it's, it just <laughs> crackhead. It's a random crackhead. I mean, like under normal circumstances, crackheads don't get jobs making eighty thousand dollars a month. Trust me, many of them Fresh were out of college, mind you, too. Right. No, nothing about Ukraine, nothing about oil and gas, and yet there he is making all of that money. Do you? And not to mention they were using his face and name on publications and whatnot. Yeah, that looks bad, especially when your dad is basically. Viceroy after knocking over the particular government to which you are in. I mean, and like you said, in some of those communications, even to talk about meetings that they were trying to arrange between um, Biden um, and Burisma or some of the officials in Burisma, this is the Washington Post. You know, yeah, they said, oh, this isn't real in the beginning. And they spent a year for it during the election, which, again, 
I still believe, had an effect on an election, whether or not it would have been Hell enough. yeah, it did. Yeah, it had to, right? Hell yeah, it did. Um, even if it was just changed the vote tally and Biden still would have had an effect. 60% of people said that they would have altered their vote right, in the had they vote. known about it. Yeah. And, and which that is, was Democrats and Republicans. Which is why they didn't put that story out there. Don't let them tell you that, oh, it wouldn't have mattered. If it wouldn't have mattered, you wouldn't have locked the story in block. Because they learned from the Hillary Clinton right. emails. Then yeah. they, they couldn't have the it's same like, thing happen again. We don't want to take this again. chance. We don't want to take yeah. this chance. And now this guy, Hellman, this is from yeah, MSNBC analyst John Hellman explained that Democrat strategists are discussing how they can basically save the House by scaring the quote-unquote crap out of voters by using the January 6th investigations to do so. Because there's this question about whether or not they're going to charge Trump. And they're split in regards to whether or not they want uh, Merrick Garland to go after Trump. And so the thought is, well, if Donald Trump runs again, which he clearly has a um, support base that will back him up, if the January 6th things are going on, they can use that as a way to basically try to preserve their capabilities in the House by scaring the public about Trump. Good luck with that. The public already knows. I mean, it's baked in. So whatever you want to think about, it's baked in. Are you, do you honestly believe that the public is unaware of Donald Trump in his last term? Like, meaning, meaning how are you going to scare people for stuff they already know and is baked into the mix? How? Yeah. How do you do that? And are, do you honestly believe that you can scare them enough to overcome your inability to get anything real and legitimate done? It's that question. And it I, gotta that be, question. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to work. Mind you, this from, this from now from the people who before the election said if there was over 200,000 yes. people dead from COVID, he should resign as president. Meanwhile, he, yes, he did all the mandates, but you know, nobody's talking about this. These Democrats, they don't talk about how the vaccine was was the Trump vaccine, which you're going to start seeing Trump say that a whole lot more. He said it at his, at his rally in North Carolina over the weekend because, in the words of Dan Abrams, I watch his rallies so you don't have to. <laughs> That's going to be my new thing. Um, but no, that was a big point of contention, him saying that more people have died because of COVID under Joe Biden. He brought in the vaccine. By the way, they booed him for that. When he yeah. was on stage and he made that point, they booed him for that. And so yeah. it's like, and they ran an article showing that the number of people that ended up taking the vaccine jumped when Donald Trump was pushing people to do so. Just, yeah. It's like, no duh. No yeah. duh. But so you have that. Then you have, so the Democrats can't run on that. Yeah. I mean, literally, I mean, and again, it makes sense why, why people are, are fed up with the Democrats because, hey, are there any problems? Really? Yeah, really? Before we before we head over to Dan Lazar, we do have one caller that's been patiently waiting online. Mark from New York. Mark, are you firing? Are you firing the squad at me, or what's going on? <laughs> what's what's on your mind? Sharon, actually, your 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 point was quite correct. I, I agree with you, except for with the fentanyl. I, I did text that it is a medically used uh, drug as well. But you're, to that point of not looking south is also in terms of the broader dynamics of what we're facing, what at least the prognosticators of IPCC are saying, the scientists are saying, um, that the borders of all nations will be in question as global warming continues. Mm. Um, that is a real threat. And so as we look at talking about them coming across with those who are bringing smuggling mules, who are bringing in drugs, and the possibility to further the spread of, of disease, and um, this is going to be a world looking past um, uh, 2030, very, very poss strong possibility for this to increase and, and the ire of many nations to say, listen, we can't have this, but we're going to be dealing. This is the crisis in fighting that crisis. But I did want to make that the focus of what I wanted to say. I wanted to respond to that, your concern, and I agree with you. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, 
Um, I also wanted to mention, I listened to very soberly, at a very sober, there were very sober conversations this uh, weekend from Michael Hudson, uh, the economist, the perspective on this global situation uh, in facing Iraq, as well as um, from, I'm um, sorry, uh, John Mersheimer. And yes. both were saying we're at, it, they didn't say conclusively, but basically we're at the doomsday, we're at the doomsday 12, midnight. It is time. We got a, a very corrupt and compromised administration, particularly Biden, and, a, and docile and stupid diplomacy. And, and, and these people, because of what's at stake, and they really want to emphasize what's at stake, is that they're willing to blow it up before they give it up. Right. And Russia will not be annihilated, and no nation would want to, not even us, would be annihilated. Listen, we're on the, the, the left leg, and you're going to take me out because I know what your plan is and all the evidence I'm gathering points to that. So you propagandize your people to the degree that they are so uninformed. Thank you, Obama. You know, but it's not just his fault. It's what the, the propaganda has been unleashed on our people that we don't know what time it is. Mm-hmm. These people who hold the enrichments and have benefit, Nancy Pelosi's and all of them, and the ones behind them, they're willing, they're that diabolical that they'll blow up. They, listen, we dropped bombs on Hiroshima. Are we surprised what this nation is capable of? And it's not our, it's not the people. I am not anti-American. I'm talking about the ruling elite right there. on this place, and their agenda is, they don't give a rat that because they figure they're going to escape in a boat or a plane or something and move to another nation. Many of us can't go anywhere. Well, they think they're insulated. They think their economic might, you know, we always have money. So at the very least, we're insulated. So what if what, who, Matt, who cares if inflation goes up to a particular degree? Who cares if various people get hurt by it? You're absolutely right. It's being eroded at this very moment. That's what's at stake. They know that the dollar hegemony is ending, not as abruptly, but it is coming to a conclusion. And they're trying to gather as much nuts as they can so they can take something with them. We have to look at this called human nature. There are many of us who are in that club. And that's where we need to wake up because they have no concern about us. And I want to see a world where we can still have disagreement. We can still say, hey, I'm wrong, you're right. But we're not going to have that with these, this. We are truly that close. Listen to John Mersheimer's uh, discussion this weekend as well. And I listened, I happened to attend in the, the, the Institute, the, the Schiller's Institute uh, Forum for a conference this weekend. Brilliant. However, I don't agree with them that it's the city of London alone. You know, that's a very Eurocentric perspective, and I don't disagree with it. America has developed its own ideology, its own framework. Have a, what's his name? He's also here in New York. He was also one of the guest speakers. But it was a very interesting, sobering conversation. Um, Caleb. Oh, Caleb Open. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Caleb is good. Dude, thank you for that. I agree with every word that you just said that came out of your mouth. Um, I think you're talking about Obama with the Ministry of Truth, right? The NDAA bill, where Obama basically allowed propaganda to the American public. Yeah, passing the act to to allow the uh, CIA to propagandize America. Yeah, Ministry of Truth. I mean, look, I, I would say that propaganda has been hitting us um, in general before. Obama passed that. But yeah, I agree with you, man. Every point that you made, I think I agree with. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Franzak. Back in a minute with the one and only Daniel Lazar. You're going to love this conversation. We're going to get into some domestic politics. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Not to mention, hit that rumble button. We're trying to get to 600. That is so our just new... Hit just hit it. Just slam it. As slam hard it. as you can. Just take your fist and slam it. Um, but let's do this. Let's get to our guests. We're joined with the one and only Daniel Lazar. One of my favorite guests, actually. Daniel Lazar is an independent journalist and author, best known as a critic of the U.S. Constitution, American politics, government, and social policy in general. He's written a number of books from the pros and Republic from Moses to ISIS, in addition to the Velvet Coup and America's Undeclared War. Daniel, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are you? So far, so good. Better that you are with us. And there's a lot to talk about on a domestic mm-hmm. front. And so I think I want to start off kind of where we left off in regards to democratic strategy. Now, the, uh, we don't have the clip, but I have the um, audio of it. But basically, analysts on MSNBC, John Hellman, basically explain that the Democratic policy at this point is to use the January 6th, I guess, investigation as a means of basically dinging Trump to try to basically protect, create fortress um, House of Representatives by basically using the January 6th investigation as a weapon to do so, especially if Donald Trump decides to run again. And these guys are basically splitting on potential criminal charges to lay on Trump um, for his role in January 6th. Now, coupled with January 6th, you just have recently last week or over the weekend, all of those guys that were going to be tried, that were mm-hmm. supposedly going to be kidnapping Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. And I found out like 75% of them were FBI yeah, informants. All of them were informants yeah. talking to each other. <laughs> but the ones that were, that were tried who were just normal everyday citizens that were supposedly involved in this kidnapping plot, either they had a hung jury or they were um, acquitted. So, and mind you, that was the same time around January 6th where all of this upheaval was going to be happening. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Meaning the fact that they've been locking up grandmas like in, in California and whatnot. Um, and then I guess the question becomes, is that going to work? I mean, we definitely need to get into the Gretchen Whitmer stuff. But for politically, is this really going to work? Okay. In my opinion, no. I mean, I think that Democrats, I mean, the elections are seven months away, right? Uh, so I, it's very dangerous to make a prediction about something seven months away. Given that, however, I think the Democrats are facing an epic wipe, wipeout. Uh, I mean, I mean, Biden himself is unpopular. Uh, the man is, you know, has one foot in the grave. He is extremely old. He's frail. He has a vacant look in his eyes. He's out of it. Number two, we have inflation, which is really hitting the working class hard, hard in this country. Housing costs, food costs, these are really hurting really badly. And then finally, the, the third is the war. And, uh, and I think that fewer and fewer people believe the official explanation that it's all Putin's fault and that America and NATO are completely innocent babes in the wood, woods in this, in this case. 
So given those three factors, I think that the attempts to to resurrect democratic political fortunes by bringing up January 6th, I mean, although I don't oppose the investigation, I think that's not going to carry the ball. So my question, though, is, is when you have this January 6th stuff, I mean, most Americans, you know, like we like I had talked about in my monologue earlier um, last hour, we've got problems with the southern border. You just named a number of other problems. January 6th right now, I think in the eyes of many Americans, um, mainly just the Democratic elite is an important factor of what's happening in their day-to-day lives. The January 6th committee is not helping lower gas prices, you know? So it's one of these things where could this potentially completely just solidify the fact that Democrats have zero idea of what's going on? We already had Pete Buttigieg earlier. We're actually, let's cue up that Pete Buttigieg soundbite really quick, because if you haven't heard this, this truly is quite a gem. Um, this is him talking uh, on, on a podcast called or a, a show called The Breakfast Club. And here he's asked, do you understand what problems are going on in the country? Let's roll the clip. You, you do realize, Pete, uh, a lot of black people feel like Democrats have kept no promises since they've been in since they've been in office. Really? Yes. We, Reverend Island said that a million times. I'm sure he'll be I mean, pressing you about okay. that tomorrow. <laughs> I, I, look, I get it. Mm, he kind of doesn't get it. But <laughs> I mean. What's the disconnect here? Well, I mean, I think that the uh, I, I think the Democrats are are in deep, deep trouble. Uh, I mean, I mean, look, but I, I mean, January sixth, the original uprising, that was a very serious event. That was a sign that American government, the American political system, is crumbling before our very eyes. And Pete Buttigieg is a reflection of that further decay. That the elite in Washington is so completely out of touch with what the was that the, the masses of the people are feeling, especially in flyover country, as they refer to it, that, um, that you know, that's a sign of this deepening decay. And the war is another sign. I mean, they don't realize how unpopular this war is going to be. And, and I think the other thing, too, with, with January 6th is, you know, it kind of, you know, like, like they keep saying, you know, oh, it was going to, it was a coup to overthrow democracy. And do I think that was actually going to happen? No, because Governor, or sorry, I'm sorry, I always know him as Governor Mike Pence when I was in Indiana, but Vice President Mike Pence, he said there was no way that that was going to happen. I mean, the vice president doesn't single-handedly hold an entire election in his one stroke of the pen. But, you know, the other thing, though, was that we now, Dan, have, you have the 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 Democratic and the Republican Party have shrunk now to the lowest numbers that they've seen. And there's been a major rise of independent voters. And then you also have the Gen Z generation coming up where Gen Z, their whole thing is, is no, 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 no. I don't want to be associated with a, with a party. You need to convince me. You need to persuade me. And you, that's why you have, for example, TikTok building its headquarters here in D.C., who are who is working with the Biden administration, thinking that they're going to get Gen Zers and, and get their votes when, mind you, they told them that they were going to help them with student debt. Um, with this rise of an independent uh, voter base and the decrease of Democrat and Republican voters, I mean, like you had kind of very much said, this shows that the, the weakened system that we're seeing with independent voters now, do you think that 
it's going to be the, the the weakness is going to be at an all time high now. I, I think first of all, number one, I, I must agree. January sixth was an attack on democracy, and if if Mike Pence had played along, the that day could have turned out very differently. He did have in his power, perhaps, possibly the power to essentially strike certain state vote tallies. And he could have conceivably have swung the election. Uh, that, that, uh, he could have conceivably have, uh, have uh, thrown the election into the House where Republicans have a built-in advantage. But number two, what you just said, I think, is actually correct about the Democrats and Republicans, uh, their polls falling. If you follow the French election, which just occurred yesterday, essentially 51% of the electorate on the far left and far right voted against the center, Emmanuel Macron. And that center corresponds to Joe Biden uh, and moderate Republicans in this country. So the center is, is dying. It's falling away. And power is shifting to the far left and the far right. So I think we'll see something something similar happening in this country as well. Well, there's a great um, point made in the chat by an anarcho-libertarian who it's it's very interesting. He goes, hmm, any legitimate uprising is met with destroying our rights and freedoms and the Constitution. Hmm. It's like they're daring us to revolt so they can take that opportunity to crack down even harder. I mean, it's got a good point. Agree or disagree. I <laughs> kind of yes, kind of no. But that January 6th was a, it clearly was an attempted coup d'etat with strong fascist overtones. I was just going to agree with you. And I've argued that case many a times that it was an assault. I think the thing with Donald Trump and what they were trying to do behind the scenes was more important and more, you know, problematic. I mean, Donald Trump was trying to get all of these other Republicans. What was it? Operation something. They named it after some kind of football thing. But basically having all of these Republicans just stand up and basically say, we are not going to verify the votes. And then you're going to have various people like them wanting Pence to come out and not confirm the votes. They would have thrown all sorts of chaos. Meaning there's all sorts of like levers in the way that our system elects a leader. And they were basically trying to attack these various points um, to try to prevent the process. But it's going to get very even more confusing because this week you have Dinesh D'Souza's video coming out or movie coming out about election corruption that and guy. the ballots and all that, which is just going to even add more to it. But yeah, yes. Souza spent time in jail. And of course, he was making those movies about Obama. Um, let's do this. Let's jump to Gretchen Whitmer, for example, for a moment. You had an investigation that went into multiple people who supposedly were trying to kidnap Whitmer. These people were part of a militia group. Now, one of the people in the group, after seeing these guys do some of the techniques and the military tactics, he went and contacted federal authorities saying these people are freaking me out in regards to how far they're willing to go. He starts becoming a spook for the group. Come to find out, you had multiple spooks that were in the group that were basically reporting. And then you run into this problem that if the people who are in charge of the group are plants working with the FBI and they're making decisions, then aren't by definition the decisions they're making on some level is basically getting people implicated in a crime that they're pushing for um, as they're being pushed by the FBI. And so this case, as it went to trial, all of these people were either acquitted or were hung juries um, in regards because it couldn't necessarily determine whether they would have done the crime if it wasn't for the FBI's involvement um, in kind of egging them on to do that stuff. I mean, it's almost as if they are trying to legitimize their job and their business, meaning from the standpoint of, of state, 
by creating cases in some respects. And I get it's fudgeable, right? On some level, you do want people to contact and say, hey, these guys are about to blow something up. Fair point. But there's a line on that where it becomes not these people about to blow something up to, hey, we're going to push you to see if we can get information on people to do something that they might not have would have otherwise done had you not been trying to push them to get evidence for a crime. What is your take on this? I mean, because I get the feeling that if the government is, as things get worse, these cases also start to get worse as the federal authorities start to put more pressure on various elements of the society that may be not in line with it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I'm with you 100%. I mean, this case involves a bunch of down-and-out white guys uh, in Michigan. And in 2009, there was a very similar case involving four down-and-out black guys in the town of Newburgh, New York, in upstate New York. And there was the same thing. They were alleged to be, to be in, in cahoots with, a, with Muslim terrorists and, a, and an FBI you know, uh, undercover agent who himself was a, a small-time crook who was cooperating with the government, you know, put them up to it, directed the operation at every stage, you know, you know geared these guys, you know, put the idea of the crime in their heads. These guys were convicted and were sentenced to more than 20 years in jail each. And this case in Michigan is the same thing, where there were, I think the number of undercover agents may actually have outnumbered. Yeah, I think you said it was like 70% of undercover agents or something like that that was there. Yeah, most of the guys were spooks. It's <laughs> so weird. And these guys were, you know, they were, they, were, they were talking, they were getting drunk, they were smoking pot, they were engaging in a lot of stupid, stupid you know, conversation back and forth about kidnapping this and doing that. But they know they were, they're idiots, complete idiots, but they were egged on and directed and guided at every step by undercover agents. So, so in other words, you have a constitutional right to be an idiot, okay? <laughs> the government, government, the government unfortunately can't behave people from, from talk, saying stupid stuff and batting around stupid ideas. But that, that is not a crime. But the government can't put the idea of a crime in somebody's head, can't direct them at every step of the way, can't manufacture the conspiracy out of nothing, and then expect a jury to believe them. Okay, so that's what happened in Michigan. Uh, it was just, you know, the, the, the FBI made it out of made it up out of 90% thin air, and, uh, and the jury revolted. Now you have, for example, from NBC News, okay? Their headline is, is the dangerous message sent by, the gov- by Governor Whitmer kid- kidnapping verdict. By eroding trust in law enforcement, the far right can continue to claim the January 6th <laughs> insurrection well. was nothing more than an exercise in free speech, okay? So we know... That most of these guys in this plot were spooked. But we should have convicted them on principle. Yeah. Here's, <laughs> on the principle. here's the thing. It's like <laughs> the article starts, you know, Daddy, do you want a Dorito? A little girl's voice asked. Honey, I'm making explosives. Can you get away from me, please? That recorded exchange between Delaware trucker Barry Croft Jr. and his daughter was just one of hundreds of examples of audio, video, and online chatter <laughs> prosecutors presented to the jury uh, in the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. Part of the Wolverine Watchmen. And again, 
this Wolverine Watchmen, they don't say, consisted more of FBI agents than it did of actual people. And then it also went on to say that this guy was making this bomb by actual like layouts of how to build it from an FBI agent. So here it's just like, (laughs) are we living in upside down world? I mean, and, and, and here's the other point, too, is that, you know, we also had over the weekend where you had Brian Stelter. He was grilled by a college freshman from the University of Chicago where he said, hey, you were pushing the hunter. You were you were um, pushing that the Hunter Biden uh, was was um, Russian propaganda. You were pushing that, you know, the Trump and Russia probe. You were pushing all of this other stuff and, and, and being very one sided. And then Fox News has its own has its own uh, problems, too, where they're very one sided. But here, I mean, NBC literally is leaving out facts and information in these articles. And it's like, who in the hell can we trust nowadays? And isn't there some form of, you know, I don't know if we need to start having it where if you leave out facts in your in your news stories that, you know, that's considered, you know, not a crime. But I mean, come on. I mean, literally. Facts are left out that this guy got these plans from an FBI agent, but they're going to use the recordings as if he just thought of it on his own. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're absolutely correct. And, and NBC News is part of this great corporate center in the political sense. You know, it's, 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 you know that the public is, like, is sick and tired of these people. They know they present lies. Uh, they present a very one-sided view. Uh, they're warmongers. They're cheering the war on. They're demonizing Russia, uh, and and they're and they're siding with you know with, with the prosecutors, even when the prosecutors are clearly stepping out of line. So yeah, you're right. I mean, so they so you know, as in France, 51 percent of the of the electorate voted against uh, the NBC News style political center, and uh, and and those forces are really losing it because people know that they are just liars and distorters. Daniel, jump to the end of that for me. Because you've made the point before that this, the way our culture and government and politics have been governed for the last several hundred years, we're basically in a decay. And that the Constitution, as it's written, is not capable to deal with the changes that we are basically encountering as a civilization and, frankly, as a world. Um, and it is making those things worse, meaning our problems are getting worse as a result. And it's getting to the point where those problems can't be mitigated in a way that maintains the system going forward as it is. What would need to happen for us to get to the point of change like this? Is it just really, it degrades until it gets to a point where changing it um, is less costly and causes less energy than just kind of maintaining and keeping it the way it's going. But what needs to take place for the world or for this country to get to the point of making the changes that you want to see in the country? Well, first of all, the way you put it, it's actually correct. I mean, at a certain point, the, the, the cost of change becomes less than the cost of maintaining the status quo. And that's what happens. People then realize that the status quo is just failing. Uh, it's not going anywhere. You can't resuscitate it. May as well just throw it aside. And, and, and I think what America needs, and I think, it, unfortunately, it'll take a revolution to get there, what America needs is simple democracy majority rule. In other words, take the Second Amendment, right? which Americans have been tearing themselves, no, tying themselves in knots over for, for decades. Okay, and thanks to the, 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 the Constitutional Amending Clause, the Second Amendment is effectively unchangeable and therefore untouchable. 
So all I'm saying is you get some kind of national assembly and you put it to a vote. And all those in favor of raising the, of maintaining the Second Amendment, vote aye. All those who are opposed, vote nay. And then you count the ballots up and you decide on a simple majority rule what stays and what goes. None of this two-thirds, three-fourths, BS that we have now, we require two-thirds of each house plus three-fourths of the state to change so much of the comma in the Constitution, because that means that tiny minorities essentially have veto power. Um, so just put it all up to a simple majority vote. If you have 51% of the vote, you rule. If you have 51, 49% of the vote, you're out of here. That's simply the way democracy works. It's a simple all or nothing majority rule system. And that's what I think America needs. But that, then would, some would argue that, you know, you have that whole dichotomy of the Electoral College where it's, you know, you have these majority rules in these major cities, for example, when it comes to states. Like, for example, I know from my own growing up, Chicago ruled Illinois. Um, and it was that, you know, here the democracy sounds great, but then you have all these other little counties that don't have the same um, ideologies or the same things that they're seeing in the major cities. But not to get off on that tangent, because we can go on the Electoral College for hours. However, when you're talking about like that tiny majority, um, anarcho-libertarian brings up a great um, point in the chat. You remember the tiny majority or, you know, a, a tiny grassroots majority that got to be bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger was the Bernie bro movement. Here he says, Bernie fulfilled his role that the DNC hired him to do of sheep herding the grassroots progressive <laughs> movement right back into the arms of the establishment, not once, but twice. I mean, is that not what he did? He gave up twice. So it's like here, you know, no matter how hard you try, you get some of these bad actors that come in and it's like, yes, we're new. When I say bad actors, I mean, like, it, he didn't stick to the courage of his convictions, you know, but it's, it's like here, these, these people can easily get bought out. They can easily either get bought out or it's, hey, don't worry. You know what? We just got to focus on, on hating the other guy. But we'll, we'll, we'll give you a position in the cabinet or something like that. I mean, looking at the way that our, our democracy is right now, and I wouldn't even call it democracy, but the way that our government is run, I mean, between lobbyists, between people making money, between, you know, let's, let's you know, a quid pro quo. I mean, is it even really possible to fix where we're at right now? Yes, it is possible. Uh, and first of all, with regard to your first comment, you know, cities versus counties, you know, cities don't vote. Counties don't vote. Millions of acres of empty grasslands in Montana and Wyoming don't vote. People vote, regardless of where they live. And if you get 51%, you form a government. If you get 49%, you don't form a government. That's simply the way democracy works. And it's a, it's a, it's a win, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a win-lose proposition. There's no middle ground. It's, it's clear and sharp. And, and yeah, democracy can make mistakes. There's no doubt about it. And, and, uh, and the people in their eternal wisdom can, can decide, you know, you know, decide on wrong things. 
But the only cure for that is to bring it back into the democratic uh, arena, fight like hell, and if you win, you persuade just 2% of the electorate to shift to your side, suddenly you've gone from a 49% minority to a 51% majority, and then you get to form a government. So that's the way progress works. That's the way democracy advances. And our current system is so complicated. It has so many nooks and crannies in which lobbyists can, can hide. And it's so monumentally corrupt. But it's not just the lobbyists, though. They're corrupt, too. Like, we can even add Bernie, add even some of them say, like Stevie G in the chat, add the squad to that. The squad, oh, we're here for you. We're here for you. Now you see none of them. They were all for for unions and all this. AOC completely drops off uh, with the Amazon rally and the Amazon vote. All of a sudden, she's coming back now. And it's like, oh, yeah, great job, guys. She's getting annihilated, saying, where the hell were you? You know, it's like, yeah, I get lobbyists. But also the people. I mean, you remember, I even remember, for example, the Tea Party movement. I remember my family like, yes, finally, people speaking for us. Ted Cruz and the Jim Jordans and all of them got in there. Look where they're at now. Top of the establishment. You know, everybody goes in with good intentions, but then they see that money, 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 (laughs) money. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoop, see you later. How much cash you giving me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you, again, you're, you're totally correct. But the only cure for this is, you know, is the, um, is the bright sunlight of democracy. Because I think your point is this is structural. Like the issue, meaning if you have all of these people with those good intentions and they get into the political space and they change, then there has to be something that's acting on those people to make them change. Like uh, I, money. <laughs> exactly. Well, that it could be influence, meaning Sanders. I don't think Sanders crashed out because of cash. I think Sanders crashed out because he was weak. There's a difference in those things. Meaning it wasn't, here, let's take the bribe. It was, oh, no, how far I, I, I don't head? think it was money, but yeah, I think yeah. it was, hey, just drop out because, you know, we, we need to put it behind Biden. Yeah. He was and not he'll willing. give you a spot in the cabinet. Yeah, he wasn't willing to basically go that extra route of using his political might to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, go for it, please, Daniel. But meanwhile, you have a Senate in which Wyoming and California have the same number of votes. You know, even though, even though California's population is like 68 or 69 times greater, uh, um, 54% of the country lives in the top 10 states that are outvoted, four to one in the Senate. 81% of minorities live in those top 10 states. I mean, how is this not a fantastically, you know, undemocratic and racist system? I mean, people talk about structural racism. This is structural racism right there. Wasn't it built this way on purpose, though? I mean, the entire point was to ensure that the masses didn't get the capability of basically dominating and running roughshod over the political process. And look, on some level, to maintain their cash of the people who were basically the elites when this all was formed. But tell me if I'm wrong. You're absolutely right. There's just no doubt about it. The historical record is quite clear. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 I mean, no word, nowhere does the word democracy appear in the U.S. Constitution. And the, uh, and the, the founders... Who were very, who were on the whole extremely wealthy people regarded democracy as a uh, a euphemism for mob rule. Mm-hmm. But the whole purpose of the of, of the Constitution is to is to sort of turn democracy inside out, you know, turn it against itself, cancel itself out, uh, and that supposedly is a source of political stability. But it's really not because people are so frustrated 
at how immobilized this gridlock system has become that they're getting angrier and angrier and they have no outlet, no way of making their views known because the system is so overly complex and it's in the pockets of the big money interests. And even parties don't even exist. Programs don't even exist. Uh, You know, it's it's a a complete welter of confusion. Mm -hmm. I think that's why people are getting so angry. And meanwhile, you know, we're living in a in a neo-biblical world of war, famine, and pestilence. People are upset. People are angry, and they have no political outlet, and that's very dangerous. Now, we have um, one political outlet, at least here on the show, and we have Brave in Atlanta that wants to ask you a question, Dan. Brave, good morning. What's your question for Dan? Good morning, guys. Dan, I I really enjoy listening to you, man. I find myself... um, teetering back and forth between uh, being frustrated with what you say uh, to, be, to being very uh, agreeable with what, with what you're saying. Um, I, I want to, <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to, um, and I was calling in to um, kind of challenge you on the, um, on the democracy and January 6th argument, because I, I feel like the system is doing what it was designed to do and is doing it well. And uh, I feel like the, the frustration that people are feeling that we have, that we are rightfully having or experiencing, is due to the fact that we are, it's becoming more and more real, real to us that we have no control over our system. But in effect, it wasn't designed for us to have control over the system, right? Technically, uh, because it works for them, not for us. But um, you just raised the point um, that kind of threw me off kilter, so I'm not sure now. You, you uh, raised the point about the, um, the, about democracy not being or not showing the word democracy not even showing up in the constitution and the idea of it um, not truly being, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but not truly being um, real as it applies to what the founders um, intended. Uh, but I, I think I can still spin it back around to my question because my, my question is if, 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 um, Change only comes by, in my opinion, uh, but, but I think history has shown it. Change only comes um, by the real change that we would need. To, and I think you kind of said it yourself. The real change that we would need um, to, to bring the system around and, and reconfigure it would have to come through revolution, right? Um, and, and even when you guys talk about uh, what Bernie and how Bernie was, uh, Bernie gave up and all that stuff, I, I think that a Bernie would have pulled uh, with Trump um, what, what Trump is being um, accused of pulling, um, who's going to in the primary, I think a lot of uh, uh, progressives would have been excited about that, right? Um, so my, my, my thing is, if, if, if we don't really have democracy, because we really don't, what we're talking about is an illusion of democracy, right? And, but, we, but we fault uh, what we saw on January 6th, uh, and there's some argument as to whether or not it was legitimate or not, or coerced. But if we fault Jan- the, the, the January 6th, um, uh, I'm going to call it a rise because I don't really think it's a, 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 a coup. That's, that's, that's unrealistic to me. Um, if we fault them for taking that action, how then do we get to, the, how then do we get to that, that inevitable revolution that's necessary to change, change the, the system and put the power back? Great question. We got about two minutes left, Dan. What do you think? You're, what's the answer? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's an excellent question. I mean, I, I mean, January 6th is an attempt to, to uh, to essentially overturn an election, I believe. Um, and uh, if it had succeeded, we essentially would never have an honest presidential election ever again, number one. Number two, what I would advocate is not doing away with elections. 
but making elections more powerful, more sweeping, and simpler. Mm-hmm. So no, so so rather than just voting for a president or a senator or a local dog catcher, whatever, you simply have a vote. You can vote for whatever party you want. You have a list of six, eight, ten parties. Seats are are accorded in a national legislature proportional to each party's share of the total vote. And then whoever gets 51% of the vote is able to assemble a ruling coalition. Very simple, very direct, very unrestrained. And that would be a revolutionary change, but a revolutionary change towards more powerful elections not against elections. Am I making this clear? Does this, do people understand what I'm saying? Am I answering the question? Yeah, I think, I so, think yeah. so too. Yeah. I mean, so, so we've we got to have, we've got to strengthen democracy by taking away all these encumbrances that these the founding fathers, you know, half of whom were slave, slaveholders. And you were going to have to jump in. I'm really sorry. Um, we we're coming to the out. edge of the break. Yeah, but I mean, the other first show. Thing is money. Um, but get it out of there. Thank right, you, my I, man. In the words of Sam Cook, a change is going to come. Change One is going to come. Days. Daniel Lazar is an independent journalist and author, best known as a critic of the U.S. Constitution. He's written books such as The Intelligence Heretics Guide to Monotheism, Frozen Republic, Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. You can follow him on Twitter at dh lazar. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. This is Fern Franzak. I want to thank producer engineer. I want to thank all of you. See you guys tomorrow. You guys have a phenomenally great day. And as always, may the good news be yours. Fault lines.